Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor of DCU. Hi, this is Mundia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vanden. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Azarelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Spertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 64. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Josh. This is Donovan. And this is Guy. We are bringing you the latest comic news and book reviews from the weeks of March 13th through March 26th. It's two weeks. We do have a little bit more news than usual because C2E2 did occur during this and the Batman Universe did cover this event uh, in person. So we'll have a little bit of talk about that as well. We do have seven books to cover, so everything's kind of evened out a little bit with the uh, schedule for the Bat Books, so we might see a little bit of a drop-off in the next episode, but for the most part it seems as if a lot of things are kind of evening out, which is a good thing. So, with that, let's get right into comic news. The very first thing we have is on March 14th, the Sin and Salvation writers, the writers who are writing the crossover event between Batman, Red Robin, and Gotham City Sirens, all talked to comic book resources about their upcoming story arc slash crossover in the books. And, uh, well, they all had some different things to say. This is going to be a little bit of a long interview just because there's three people responding to each question. But uh, I will read for comic book resources, Josh will read for David Hine, Donovan will read for Fabian Nesiza, and Joel will read for Peter Calloway. What can you say about the events of the crossover itself? What can readers expect to see in general and in your title specifically? Asriel has become increasingly unstable over the past months as he learned that the Order of Purity created the Suit of Sorrows and the Swords of Sin and Salvation with the expectation that they would one day be inherited by a second messiah who would lead humanity in a new world order. After committing suicide and rising from the dead, he has come to literally believe that he is that messiah. Now he has decided Gotham is a city so seeped in sin that he can no longer judge people individually. Instead, he wants to make an example of it, as God did to Sodom and Gomorrah in an ancient times. God promised Abraham to spare the cities if he could find ten righteous men. Azrael is more generous. If just one of Gotham's heroes can demonstrate that they are truly righteous, the city will be spared. We've used that concept as a springboard to examine the characters of Red Robin and Catwoman, as well as Dick Grayson's Batman. I've tried to allow both Fabian and Peter the space to use the story to examine the motivations of their characters, to explore what truly makes a character heroic. This examination uncovers a hidden aspect of each of the characters, a secret sin that, once revealed, exposes them to Azrael's judgment. In the case of Dick Grayson, we learn a secret from his early life that predates the death of his parents, and gives us a new insight as to why Dick became what is today. It involves a plan by Azrael and the Crusader to purify Gotham City and purge of all its sin. The only hope of saving the city is to see if the moral fortitude of either Dick, Selina, or Tim can qualify as strong enough to spare the city. Through it all, Raish is keeping a very interested and very vested eye on the proceedings. Hmm, this one's tricky. What drew me to the idea, and something I know is close to David's heart, is the way we all deal with faith. What role it plays in our lives, what it means to be a hero. How far, how far will you go to save the people and city you love? 
Those are the issues that are the core of this event. Here are some pretty great revelations in the crossover. We learn a lot about both Tim and Dick and Selena's story in all of this with her sister Maggie. Well, I won't say too much, but it's meant to help illuminate the complicated relationships between the two. What part does your lead character play in the story overall, and how do the Angels of Death affect them specifically? Dick gives us a new perspective on Asriel's madness. He is ultimately responsible for Asriel's actions because it was he who allowed Michael Lane to inherit Asriel's sword and costume. Back in Battle for the Cal miniseries, Asriel, Death's Dark Knight, Dick was run through by Asriel's sword of sin shortly before Asriel's suicide. The sword reveals the sins of its victims, and in Dick's case, it has stirred memories that he has suppressed all his life. Dick needs to confront both Asriel and his own past, and he actively avoids bringing Bruce back to Gotham. This is something he has to handle on his own. Bruce has effectively handed Gotham over to Dick's safekeeping while he sets up Batman Incorporated, and this is Dick's first real test of his ability to play the role of Gotham's official guardian. If it goes down, Gotham goes with it. Tim is being tested. He has a certain amount of time to save an immoral man, but obstacles are placed in the path that put people in jeopardy. The test is, what choices will you make to save a man of standing and power at the expense of nameless innocence? It's a one-hour roller coaster ride with some very interesting moral complications at the end. The issue reunites me with my old Robin co-conspirator, Freddie Williams II, who is giving regular artist Marcus Toe a breather. Freddie's art, as usual, is blowing me away. He missed him and he missed Gotham, and it shows because he's drawing the daylights out of the character and the city. Selina plays an interesting role in the event. As the most villainous of the three, obviously, hers is a different burden in the event. She doesn't ever claim to be a hero, yet she's being judged like one. But she brings a unique sensibility and morality with her as she operates in a reality where moral choices are one big grey area. Her world isn't as black and white as Tim and Dick's. As for Ivy and Harley, well, I can't really answer that question without giving away what happens in Gotham City Sirens issue 21. How do the other characters, Batman, Red Robin, or Catwoman, play into your title, and how do you see the dynamic between the three of them? When the Crusaders start setting fires in Devil Square, a number of people are drawn to the action, including Batman, Red Robin, and Catwoman. Asriel's delusional worldview tells him that if they are there, it's for a preordained purpose, and he decides that those three will decide the fate of Gotham. Whether they have really been brought there by fate or whether it's by pure chance is a question that I've left open. Asriel is so out of touch with reality that he can make any eventuality fit in with his vision of the world and his role as God's weapon of vengeance. Each of the three has a weakness that Asriel interprets as sin. Tim's sin is connected to Israel. Tim's sin is connected to his intellectual judgment. Selena's is much more instinctive. She has never claimed to be an innocent. But there's an event in her own life that still burdens her, a sin that she has never been able to purge herself of. Her response is a purely emotional one. Dick's sin relates to the sense of personal responsibility he takes for all his actions. Each of them has to take Asriel's test as an individual, but in the end, all three of them will have an equal hand in the outcome. If there's a single sin that they share... It's the sin of pride, and that's a hard one to shake off. You don't see too much of it, honestly. Each character has to face their own individual tests on their own, or else they'll be considered cheating and the city will burn. So in my issue, Tim is in contact with Dick during the story, but he's really on his own. It's a self-contained story with a beginning, middle, end that can be read as part of the sin and salvation whole. Or if you're a regular reader who doesn't want to sample the crossover, you'll still get a complete story out of the single chapter. Both Tim and Dick play a big role in the issue. 
Tim plays a larger one than Dick, but both are instrumental and the event will ripple across the coming arc of Sirens. In fact, we've got a revelation planned for GCS 20, issue 26 that I hope will knock people's socks off. Mike, Harvey and I talked about it and we're excited. I'm dying to let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, but I'm sworn to secrecy. As for the dynamic between the three, I think it's a subtextual one. But now that you mention it, wouldn't it be great to do a series with Tim, Dick, and Jason? Okay, so a couple different things happened in this interview. One, we can obviously tell that these three people were interviewed at separate times, and Comic Resources just fed their answers into this uh, article because their responses have nothing to do with the previous person's responses at all. But that being put aside, a couple of interesting things. The first one being... One, this was originally planned to be in Red Robin 22, Gotham City Sirens number 22, and Batman number 709. Uh, as we will later find out during the comic reviews, it actually started in Batman number 708 with an unsolicited story from David Hine appearing in Batman number 708, starting off the Sin and Salvation story. There's a couple different things that I find interesting. The fact that Fabian says, well... This can be read as a single chapter in the long overall Red Robin story, or it could be read all together. It just depends on what you'd like to do. Well, the problem with that is, how, do, how exactly does that work? Because if the person before, or if he says, you know, there's a beginning, middle, and end, how do you know the end of the story without reading of the story? I, I don't understand that. I know it can be done. I don't know that any of these writers are good enough writers to actually do something like that. That's the only thing that I have kind of an issue with. It is interesting how, for the most part, David Hine, it seems like this was his idea to begin with, and these other two guys jumped in on the idea as well and lend their support to, to David Hine's story. Azrael's series got canceled. I don't understand why we're seeing four more issues of Azrael in these main books when there's already decent stories being told in the main books and that's why they weren't cancelled. It just seems as if someone decided, hey, yeah, we're going to cancel Azrael, but, but wait, wait, I have this great story and where am I going to tell it? Oh, well, you'll have to tell it over this crossover between three books. I'm curious to see uh, what this dark event from Dick's past is. Maybe it has something to do with that file that was found like during the first part of Batman Reborn or that picture that he found under the memorial case or whatever. Like Dustin said, it's okay, Asriel's done, it's over, so why are we getting Asriel in more books now than he had when he had his own series? If people weren't buying the books, that means that they don't that they didn't like Azrael and the Azrael storytelling. So I don't know if there's an editor saying, "Oh, well, maybe it's just because they didn't read it and they don't know how awesome it is." Maybe if we put it in the Bat books, people will be like, "Wow, this Azrael stuff is awesome! I should have picked up the series." Or maybe not. I don't know. But this, aside from you know finding out what's in Dick Grayson's past. This has almost no interest in me because I really don't care about Asriel saying, oh, Catwoman, you are not pure of hearts because didn't we just get that in that storyline with her sister? So, yeah. I'm mixed on this. It sounds like an interesting premise if they take it seriously. It seems almost as if they made the entire Asriel series build up to this, which <laughs> that can't possibly be the case. But if it is, that's it's interesting that they really want to push the story forward and tell the story no matter what series it's in. I find that very interesting, but... 
It, it depends. I mean, bringing something out of Dick Grayson's past that he's held into his subconscious since his, since the character's inception in 1940, this really has to be something worthwhile. This really, really, really has to be something that's just not just, you know, a really, I say the word a lot, tertiary kind of, you know, throwaway kind of thing. This really has to be a game changer if we're going to accept the fact that this shaped who Dick Grayson was apparently even before his parents were, were killed, which... Uh, you know, until until this moment, it should be the defining moment in his life. Um, I really, I really am curious to see how this is going to work out because I really don't want this to be like a really stupid thing. And I mean, as as cynical and pessimistic as it may sound, that's been the case a lot lately. I mean, i.e., our review of Death of Oracle. So I, I hope this storyline the best, but I'm fe- I'm fearing the worst. <laughs> And I think, let alone that it's Asriel, I'm just not a big fan of crossovers, especially when all of these writers are saying how much independent freedom they've got to write their own story fitting within this arc. I think we're going to get quite unrelated and not very good stories independently, which will become a disjointed overall arc. So I'm not really looking forward to this at all. The one thing that was mentioned that I I think is something that would be interesting is a series with Tim, Dick, and Jason. That would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Even Or something even crazier was, you know, they kind of explored... Dick and Damien teaming up against Jason and, well, it was Scarlet at the time. But what happens if Jason, like, because of some situations that have happened in the in past issues, somehow ended up teaming up with Tim because of something? You know, Tim's kind of been a little bit, uh, living in, a little bit in that gray area when it comes to certain things, especially with using anarchy to help him, and anarchy for a while was a foe of him, himself. But, uh, you know, what happens if Jason and Tim had some kind of team up to go against Dick and Damien? That, that could happen, too. <laughs> I don't know. I've actually had... Battle my... of the Robins. <laughs> Battle for the birds or something like that. I've actually had it in the back of my head that there's always been an, op- an opportunity, a missed opportunity to do like a Robin miniseries in terms of like examining the relationship between Batman and each individual Robin, how they're alike and different. And if they're saying, wouldn't it be cool if there's a Tim, Dick, and Jason series, if that's one of them being very, very coy, that would be interesting. Yeah, it, it could be cool. I don't think Tim's, I mean, people say that Tim's in the gray area morally right now. I really don't think he is. He's just, he's just doing things he hasn't done before. I mean, he's not. He's not. He's still not killing people, or, or he's he's not even as dark as Batman is in Dark, Batman Dark Knight number two. But um, the idea is certainly interesting for the the three main Robins to come to come to blows. All right. So the next bit of news we've got also comes from March fourteenth. DC Comics releases solicitations for June two thousand eleven, and there's a couple of different things going on. Uh, first off, there's a couple creator changes as far as who's going to be on certain books. It looks like Dustin Wynn will be off of background. Pierre Perez will step in for what's expected to be a short run. John Winnick will not only be in Batman and Robin, but he will also start a new story in Superman Batman. Uh, Batman Incorporated gets another new artist with Scott Clark taking over for Chris Burnham. Tony Daniel takes a month off in Batman, and Steve Scott and Ryan Wynn manage the art. Uh, but Tony Daniel will be doing the writing. And Dustin Wynn is doing a number of covers that month as well. As far as the stories go, Superman Batman explores the first time Batman Dick Grayson worked with Superman after becoming Batman. <laughs> oh, no. And it's written by none other than Judd Winnick. We just no. had the story less than a year ago! No! 
Anyway. Uh, it's the Batman. same title! <laughs> God, Batman, uh, Arkham Asylum Madness gets another uh, preen as it was released uh, last June, June of 2010. Looks like it's going to get a second release. Batman turns up in a number of other DC Universe titles, including Secret Six and Power Girl. Flashpoint will kick off with a number of miniseries and one-shots, including Flashpoint, Batman, Night of Vengeance, number one of three. And the media incarnations of Batman will continue to have uh, issues come out for Young Justice, Batman Brave and the Bold, and Batman Arkham City. Now, the solicitations did not have anything for Batwoman or Batman Europa, since they weren't solicited, so we'll have to wait till July. But based on some news from C2E2, it looks like we might be waiting a little bit longer than July to see Batwoman released. I really have no words, aside from that little outburst. find it weird that Dustin Wynn is uh, leaving Batgirl so soon. uh, I'm kind of concerned about all these artists, you know, not staying on the books for a while. Judd Winnick again? Yeah. He didn't like the first time he did the story, so he figured he'd do it again. I would have thought um, Tony Daniel would have had enough time off by now to at least get one issue done. Alright, so those are the solicitations for June. Alright, on March 15th, Fabian decides to talk with Newsrama about the future of Red Robin. He has been known in the past to talk a lot about different uh, things coming up in, in the pages of Red Robin as well as Tim's life. So what will he tell us now? I'll read for Newsrama, and Don will read for Fabian Nasiza. Fabian, now that Batman Inc. has been established and fans are beginning to understand the role of each of the Batman characters, how would you describe Red Robin's mission? Red Robin's mission remains what I would call synergistically independent of Batman Inc. The goals of the characters in both books are similar and can overlap, but Tim has already begun doing, on his own level, the same things Bruce intends to do. I think we pretty clearly established the parameters for the characters in Red Robin 17. Bruce apprehends criminals on a worldwide basis using a network of operatives. Red Robin investigates international crime on a more covert, comprehensive level, while his Neon Knights social organization tries to keep young people away from a life of crime before they begin. In March, you'll be finishing up the story of the Internet and the Mad Men. What was the theme you were exploring with this story? How does it play into what's coming up? Blah, 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 the writer is going to talk about oh-so-important themes in his superhero comics. If I have to tell it to you, then I didn't do a good enough job writing the story. I will say, a lot of what I try to do with Tim is about him learning now so that he can become a world-class, borderline, dictatorial control freak when he's an adult. The rabbit hole storyline shows Tim learning that he can't control all aspects of freeform information flow, and that even when he can, it's not always a good thing. That all gears up the series for the Seven Days of Death story in May. What type of story can we expect... And what will Tim be facing? Red Robin goes on an international chase to figure out the depths of a worldwide assassination tournament, which is a lot deeper than Tim first thought, combined with being the object of the tournament when he becomes a target for assassination. Lots of twists and turns, some unexpected guest stars, an unexpected death, and an issue 24 contains the single best cliffhanger I've ever written. What's coming up for Red Robin this summer? Well, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, But in issue 26, I hope we'll finally have the confrontation between Red Robin and Captain Boomerang that I've been foreshadowing for a while. But it won't be like any confrontation you would expect. Alright, so that's that interview. Well, one, he didn't say anything about Tim's V-card, which is surprising because I think this might be one of the first interviews he's done by himself talking about Red Robin. 
um, where he didn't talk about Tim's V card. <laughs> so maybe that's coming up sooner than we expect, and that's why he's not talking about it. Or maybe the entire idea just got thrown out. Who knows? <laughs> maybe yeah. that's the confrontation with Captain Boomerang. Oh, no. I, <laughs> I hope not. It's going to happen uh, on I the internet. I do think that the Captain Boomerang confrontation is, is going to not be a confrontation. It's going to end up being some kind of like team-up or something like that. Because isn't the Captain Boomerang that killed his parents dead? No, he came back in Blackest Night. And he's still alive? Yeah, that's why Tim was talking to him from jail. That confused me, too, because as far as I knew, he was dead, but... then there's Blackest like, Night number seven was back to life, yeah. Yeah, Tim like goes to jail, and he's like, you killed my father, I hate you forever. And I'm like, wait, wasn't this like... Uh, so I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, either way, I don't think it's going to end up being a confrontation where Tim's going to end up into a fight with him. I don't have much else to say, aside from yay for the internet, internet story being over. Especially after this last issue. No doubt. No, no doubt. I hope that the, the storylines coming up are more interesting than Tim trying to control everything. That's a constant theme of a lot of these Batman books. I am growing very tired of just, just in terms of just reading, no matter how good the issues actually are individually. Like, the Batman family books have just become this one big, you know, OCD, control freak kind of situation where everybody is trying to control everything, except for maybe Batgirl. And it's really growing tiring when they're all trying to do the same thing. And I, I know Tim is that kind of character, but I kind of want him to kind of branch out and decide what else he wants to do with his life besides control the world. And it might be interesting from, a, from an ethical perspective, talking about a superhero, but I'm looking forward to them moving past this. I mean, I, I, I care less about who he has sex with than what's he going to do besides this control freak thing. I quite like how he said, blah, blah, if I have to explain it to you, then I clearly didn't do it right. But I don't think any of us really understood this rabbit hole arc. So, until <laughs> he, but yeah, so until he did that small paragraph underneath explaining it, it was about him not being able to control everything. I didn't really understand it. So I thought it was quite funny. All right, so that's everything for that. Moving on to our next bit of news. On March 17th, Combo Resources posts up an interview with Scott Snyder. They talked about the direction of Detective Comics is heading along with who we can expect to see making an appearance in the upcoming issues. I'll read for Comic Book Resources, and Joe will read for Scott Snyder. In your upcoming Hungry City arc in Detective Comics, you've got a dead girl and a dead whale washing up in Gotham. What can you tell us about the story beyond that? The story starts with a bang. I hope people enjoy it. It's one of my favorite openings that we've done so far. The first cycle is about how Gotham is changing with Dick under the cowl. In terms of the population of the city, the actual citizens can be more vicious than they were in certain ways with Bruce. Because the city is changing into a fiercer, meaner, younger adversary for Dick. Similarly, this cycle is really about the new faces of the underworld, the worlds of organized crime that have moved in since the fall of the Falcones and the Moronis and the fall of the Black Mask. So we're introducing a whole bunch of new faces, one of which is my favorite character so far the daughter of Tony Zuko, the man who killed Dick's parents. Her name is Sonia, and she actually claims to be the victim in the whole case. According to her and Commissioner Gordon, she's a legitimate businesswoman. She was never crook. She started a successful upstart bank, but she can't escape the legacy of her father. So in some ways, she has things in common with Dick in the way that he's haunted by the legacy of what happened with her father and his parents as well. They have an interesting connection that I enjoy writing. They share this ugly history, and they are both trying to get away from it. 
You've spoken before of the way the city is something of a black mirror, throwing your fears back at you. What do the villains in Hungry City tell us psychologically about Dick? For me, Dick's strengths and weaknesses are very different from Bruce's in that Dick has much more explicit faith in the human character and in people in general. My feeling is the way the city will challenge him is to show him how dark and vicious people can be. With the Moronis and the Falcones, in some ways, there was a kind of code of honour, even though they were pretty bad criminals at the end of the day. There was a kind of order to the way they behaved. These new characters are sort of younger, more vicious, modern criminals, trying to fight their way into the underworld in this power vacuum. They really do reflect a certain aspect of Dick's psychology in that he's used to dealing with Bruce's rogue gallery. These criminals that have a dignity about the way they behave. These new characters are ones that break the rules and aren't afraid of Batman. That's one of the things about them. They don't have any fear at all of the Bat. That's something that really shocks Dick, and Tim, as well. You mentioned Tim. Are other members of the Bat family involved in Hungry City? You see Tim. Tim is definitely a character who has a bond with Dick Grayson that's really interesting, in that they are so close. Having reread Prodigal recently, and some of the early stuff with both of them together, they really have a chemistry as two former Robins. He's a character I like using a lot. I haven't used Damien yet. I plan on it. I love reading Damien. I'm just intimidated a little by a bit by using him. He throws a little bit of comic relief into things, so I've been trying to avoid up to this point because Tony Daniels and Grant Morrison and Pete Tomasi have used him so well. I thought this is sort of a darker book and maybe it would make more sense to keep him out of there, but he'll be in there soon and Barbara figures it in there in a big way as well. Alright, so there's nothing really to say. I'm excited about Scott Snyder's uh, arc. I'm excited about the conclusion in Detective Comics coming out on the 30th of March. There's nothing really I can say. Everything that he's doing, I'm excited to see and I'm excited to where he's going to take it. So, yeah, he gives us a little bit of some clues of what we're going to see in the future, but it's not really changing my feelings as far as whether or not I'm going to really want to read the issue when it comes out the day that it comes out, because it's going to be good, as we've seen so far. You know, the the daughter of Tony Zuko, you know, that's going to play a little bit of, uh, I'm sure, some things going on with uh, the fear stuff that's inside of Dick's mind right now and the things that he's been dealing with lately. I'm sure that's going to take some kind of uh, aspect of that since it you know, his parents were murdered by Tony Zuko. So I have faith in Snyder, and I'm sure he'll do a good job. Yeah, this, this doesn't deter me from Snyder's run at all. I did question the character of Sonia Zuko and the fact that she, her ambitions are nothing. She, she, she wants to convince people that she's not a crook. That ring is very similar to me about the Mario Falcone storyline in Dark Victory. You know, he's a descendant of a crime family, a big crime family. He's going legit. I mean, it's, it's almost the exact same thing. It has a little more weight to it in the significance of her father and her, you know, familial lineage. But I'm just concerned that it's going to be too similar. But other than that, it's, it certainly sounds interesting. Snyder's a guy who really writes the characters without overwriting. He, he writes the characters and their actions and not their inner monologues or anything. He tries to make the stories about them that much deeper. So I'm always looking forward to what he's going to do on Batman from now on. I'm still looking forward to this next arc. We get quite a lot of interviews, it seems, from... Scott Snyder because his run on Detective is obviously very popular but we don't seem to get anything new in his interviews so I'm starting to get a bit bored of them but um, yeah. I'm still looking forward to this it's not put me off 
detective comics at all. One thing that, uh, especially when we get into the C2E2 stuff, it seems as if there's this new sudden thing where no one can talk about anything worthwhile coming up. Fabian has always been known to talk a lot about different things and hint at things. Even if it's like just the briefest mentions about different characters coming up or ideas for new characters that he's been exploring, he's he's done a very good job in the past. And that last interview we did was not really that great um, as far as different hints of what we can expect coming up. But then on top of that, we also have, you know, Snyder has, you know, he, he does what he needs to do to promote his book because everyone's talking about it. But everyone's talking about it because it's good. He doesn't need to do all this talk. I think the thing is, DC wants him to get out there and do this talk because he's not a big name. Yes, he, he's done a great job with American Vampire, and he's doing a great job with Detective Comics. But to a lot of mainstream comic people, his name is very unknown. And I think that's why he has been doing so many interviews. It's just unfortunate that it's a lot of the same stuff in almost every interview. Yeah, I agree with that, yes. All right, so that's going to move us into the C2E2 stuff. On March 18th, 19th, and 20th, C2E2 occurred in Chicago, and I attended on behalf of the Batman Universe to get everything about Batman out of the convention. Now, as we know from the last comic cast where we reported about uh, Emerald City Comic Con, there wasn't a whole lot of news that came out at that convention, so I didn't have a whole lot of high hopes not knowing exactly who was going to be leading the the, uh, different panels, and the fact that they didn't specifically have a Batman panel, but they did have one last year. And with all this hush-hush, secret-secret stuff going on with DC and the future storylines and everything, it was kind of... I wasn't expecting a whole lot, let's just put it that way. Well, on March 18th, before the panels even started, we were walking around and we noticed on Chris Burnham, the artist who is working on Batman Incorporated number 4, 6, and 7, we noticed that uh, he had a nice banner behind him. You can check out the banner on the website, but what's interesting about the banner is that there's a couple of new characters we haven't seen in the Batman universe before. The first one is a white, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is it looks like someone in a fencing attire character in the bottom of the banner. The most interesting character in the image is actually the character in the top right of the image, which appears to be a digital stylized Batgirl, which could in fact be possibly the new alter ego of Babs, since Batman did say at the beginning of Batman Inc. that Barbara Gordon would have to take a new role within the Batman family. And with the death of Oracle and her no longer acting as Oracle, this could be the new alter ego of Barbara Gordon. In addition, we did ask Burnham off-camera to tell us about the image, and he did say that the image was set to post on the source before the convention, and he really couldn't talk about a lot of the new characters because DC didn't officially post the image. Not that I think he would have been able to talk that much about these characters if the image was posted, because I'm sure DC wouldn't have said, Hey, see that person up in the top right? Yeah, that's uh, that's the new ba- Barbara Gordon. So that was the first bit of news we got as far as Batman from C2E2. That's like Barbara's a ghost. <sighs> the death of Oracle again. It's like, is she going to be, like, the fact that, like, everyone's running into action and there's, like, a hologram running with them is like... Well, the, 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 everybody thought she's dead, so she can't be running because she's dead, right? Or, or flying, right. I mean, it's like... 
It's like, is she going to be like a, a hologram or like an avatar or something? Which like you notice that she doesn't have any legs. <laughs> yeah, I notice that. I don't want to be too judgmental because this is just a picture. I'm like, oh, she's going to be a hologram. That's stupid. Before, like, I even know anything, and the story's even out. But I, I really hope that 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 it is just me jumping the conclusions. We shall see. Yeah, this was worth you know having a death of Oracle story. <laughs> this running image. All right. So also on March 18th, DC held the DC Nation panel. And the panel was led by Dan DiDio with creators Paul Cornell, Gail Simone, Scott Snyder, and Bill Willingham in attendance with Bob Wayne as well. There was only a couple of different Batman-related items that came up. The first one was that Batman Beyond is doing well, and they will be expanding the universe in the near future. The answer was given in a way where it could be mean two different things. Uh, the first being that the actual universe would expand, and the other being that Batman Beyond may branch into the other DC Universe books. Uh, we have seen that in the past with Batman Beyond Terry McGinnis appearing in Superman Batman, with Superman set in the future with uh, Terry McGinnis, but it's unclear as far as what exactly they were meaning. I, I don't think the book is doing as well to warrant another book coming out um, so it only makes sense for that that to mean that they could be expanding the actual universe as far as branching out into the other DC Universe books. I just want to know what kind of continuity Batman Beyond is in. And if they're, they're going to be coy and, and uh, not answer, then my interest will quickly wane. I'm okay with the ambiguity. I think I said that before, but... Uh... If they're going to expand the universe, maybe do it in backups or something, like little features within Batman Beyond. All right, the next bit was a fan asked if Jeremiah Arkham or Alice Sinner will be making their way back to any Bat books. Scott Snyder answered that Arkham Asylum in general will be appearing, but nothing specifically with Arkham or Sinner. This answer may have only been in line with Detective Comics since Alice Sinner recently appeared in Gotham City Sirens. So that is unclear as far as what, what that will actually be. Another fan asked if we would be seeing any more characters from Batman Incorporated in Detective Comics, such as Tim in 874. Snyder replied that other characters will be appearing in the book in the future. Dick Grayson is different from Bruce in a way where he asks for assistance with it when needed. Snyder also pointed out that this could become a problem for Dick. A discussion on delays occurred after a fan asked when we would be seeing Batwoman actually come out. DiDio said that the recent delay was actually done by himself. He said he wanted to hold the series back to a later date so the launch of the series could have a better date. What? It, it may be an educated guess, but that could mean that July or August, so that San Diego Comic-Con is used as a promotional tool for Batwoman. So that is all the news from the DC Nation panel. There's a lot more news on Saturday, but let's go over a couple of these things. It was interesting to hear Dan DiDio say that Batwoman was held back by him, being that, you know, obviously he's the co-publisher of DC Comics now. I'm unaware, maybe maybe I don't know this, but I didn't know that there was good times of the year to launch a title. I was unaware of this. Although, looking back on the history of DC Comics over the last couple of years, it seems like all the big events somehow start around June... Because we had Blackest Night last year, and then we had all the Blackest Night miniseries start around that same time. We also had the entire Batman universe. All the comics started off in June as well, in 2009. 
On top of that, we have Flashpoint coming up this June, but we know Batwoman's not going to be in June, or at least they're not. They haven't solicited it, which means it's very doubtful that it's going to be happening in June, um, July, or August. In my opinion, would make more sense maybe the end of July, early August, and then they could use San Diego as kind of a platform. I don't know how they would. I don't really understand even how they could do it as far as promoting it more than they already have. It's it's going to be one of those books where it's going to come out and people are probably going to buy it, maybe not even because they know anything about Batwoman, but because of other aspects, being with her sexuality or the art itself or, you know, the different creators attached to the project. So it's, it's I don't understand how they can promote this book anymore and get people to want the book any more than they already have. I think that's a really questionable explanation. I mean, if you wanted... It seemed to me like the original date for the for the title come out was was good. I mean, people are asking why the delay. Well, it, it would just be better if it was better in my mind. That people wouldn't be asking why the delay. They would they would be agreeing and not just asking questions about DC's mysterious decisions. I, I don't know what to say to that. I mean, I don't know. I don't agree that it was a better date. It's just it's just, and I don't I don't even think people care that she's. Um, the sexual orientation of Batwoman anymore because they, they read Greg Rucka's detective run with the character. Most, pretty much the majority of opinion is that it was really, really good and they want to see more. So, now we aren't seeing more. I, that's just very, very disconcerting and confusing to me. If you guys think that the wait for issue, for issue one is something, wait till you see the wait for issue two. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 ho. I don't think this. Uh, delays done anything to help the book because I've heard so many stories about um, even new readers and people who've got nothing to do with the rest of the Batman universe just they've heard about this Batwoman book and how good it is and the art's amazing and they want to pick it up and I've heard so many stories about people going to like comic shops and waiting to pick it up and then finding out it's not out that week it's been delayed again and I think they're just going to lose people now I don't think a delay ever helps a book There's, I don't think in any way shape or form delays help a book be successful. The original delay of Batwoman was due to, you know, timing and they wanted to get more issues in the can so that they could release more books. Now, there was a bunch of different things that you discussed on the relations of the, the delays that have been occurring, and he did specifically say that they used to make a joke that said, uh, we'll keep putting late books out as long as you keep buying late books. And then he said, I say that. jokes... But the joke's not funny anymore because you guys aren't buying the books that are late. So, I don't understand this. Uh, I mean, when we get to the next next bit of news, we'll talk a little bit more about the delays, about some other things that Dan Dio has said. But it just... I, I don't see how delaying this book until, you know, July or August or even sometime after that could, could help this series. I mean, the only thing I could think is if... It wasn't, it, like, he specifically said he wanted to release it at a better time of the year. Well, okay, fine. So if that was your reason, that doesn't make any sense because, again, there, there's no, I am not aware of any specific time frame that allows a book to have a better launch. Unless it's like a month where nothing comes out. This isn't like never primetime TV where there's like sweeps and season finales and like hiatuses. I mean, comics... 
RNCs. I mean, you can come up with an, an excuse for any month. Well, actually, summer, it's going to be pretty bad because, you know, Marvel has Thor and Captain America coming out. So it's going to be really hard to release a DC book in that market. So we're going to do it in September. Oh, actually, we can't do it in September because that's when the new Wonder Woman series is going to be on NBC. And we're going to, our promotional team will be pushing Wonder Woman. And pushing another female character is going to be really hard. So expect Batwoman in the year 2013. I've never. It's getting ridiculous. Yeah, I've never heard anything like this before, where you have to like wait, you know, for the right time of the year to put a book out. I thought it was bad how even last week's comics were still having this um, preview for Batwoman issue one, at least in April. I mean, I'm sure it was clearly one of the last minute decisions, but the thing is, I'm I'm almost positive issue one was ready to go, and they did plan on doing it in April, and then it's it was a very last minute decision where they said. Hey, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to put it out. Do not send it to print. We're not going to put it out now. But it was an and that's why the previews were already in the book with the date saying it was coming out in April because it was so last minute. And I'm sure that they have like one or two or three issues done. And I almost want to say that it has nothing to do with the time frame, like he said. It's more has to do with the fact that they want to make sure that they can release this book consecutively month to month instead of... One one issue here, wait three months for the next issue, like we're seeing with Batman and the Dark Knight so far. Uh, especially as, I think, wasn't it initially set for release in, back in, like, February? Yep. So they then pushed it back to April, which is what J.H. Williams wanted, and since then they got, oh, well, February would have been okay, but uh, we can't have it in April, we've got to wait. I wonder if this has anything to do with what Morrison's doing, because he's kind of retconning the whole, like, Kane family history and the Batwoman history. And maybe they have to, like, scramble to fix the books. They gotta put Kathy Kane in every issue. That's what they're doing. She's that awesome. All right, so then on Saturday, the first panel of the day was the DC Universe panel. Um, This was helmed by executive editor Eddie Berganza. And the participants were Bob Wayne, Dan DiDio, Kevin McGuire, Chris Burnham, Scott Snyder, Mike Norton, Brian Ezra, and Franco. There was a a couple of different uh, Batman mentions uh, so let's cover them. The first thing is, before the panel began, CBAT88 from the Batman Universe forums actually had a chance to talk with Dan Dio and had a little bit of time to talk to him about the delays. The first thing he said was that Batman the Dark Knight was brought up and Dan said that they were looking at bringing in a second artist to ensure that issues come out on time in the future. So that plays back into the delay situation again. As we know, Tony Daniel is also bringing in extra artists as well for his future issues of Batman. So this might be something where, you know, DC is looking at this and saying, it's great that we've got artists who can write and draw, but unfortunately they can't keep up with the schedules that they are. So that could be the reason of why we're getting these crossovers. That could be the reason why we're seeing these fill-in writers. Uh, I still have no excuses for Batman and Robin because there really is no excuse for that. But it just funnels back into all the delay situations. This is just a mess. This is like a big cluster build of just, I don't know, like like every every month now something is delayed or something has changed or something just is like not ruined but just, just messes up in some way. They re- DC, okay, this is the point where I have to say DC has to get their stuff together in order to just be successful. I mean, it's just, there's nothing more basic than that, really. Also, who actually wants to see David Finch writing the book? I mean, he's a good artist, but his writing's not 
brilliant. I'd much rather see him penciling than writing, so why can't they get a fill-in writer instead? Yeah. The other thing I'm getting tired of is I'm tired of seeing books that have, you know, three different artists on them and different pages with different styles because they've got different artists taking, like, bits of a book just to make sure that the book comes out. It's one thing if it's intentional and that's what it's supposed to be, but in other situations it's completely unintentional and it just comes across as, well, we were just trying to get this out on time. All right, so with that, let's go through some of these other things. Uh, Chris Burnham mentioned that everyone that is in the Batman universe will appear in issue 6 of Batman Incorporated. The cover only briefly hints at who will be in the issue. Now, uh, the cover has been solicited, and to tell you right now, the cover that was solicited has nothing to do with the cover, because the cover that he's referring to is the cover, is that banner that was behind him at his booth, which we haven't seen for whatever reason. It was announced that Chris Burnham is now an exclusive artist to DC Comics. Burnham also said that he will be doing Bat books for at least two years. So we know he'll be on Batman Incorporated 4, 6, and 7, but he will also be on some other Bat books in the future, as he said that uh, Mike Martz has kind of claimed him as uh, part of the Bat group. Gail Simone was asked if Manhunter would ever appear in Birds of Prey, to which she answered yes. It was asked when we would be seeing Batwoman. The answer given was next week in Batman Incorporated number 4. A fan asked if the bat emblem on Bruce Wayne's chest lights up. The answer was yes, and it reflects light. Because that makes a whole lot of sense. Oh, that's a worthwhile question. Gail Simone assured fans that Huntress will be playing a large role in the upcoming story arc of Bird's Prey. She also added that fans of the character will be pleased with the rest of 2011. A fan brought up that knowing that Bruce's mother's name was originally Kane, and how does that affect the other Kanes in the DC Universe, Snyder said that the issue will be brought up in Batman Gates of Gotham, and that Cassandra Kane will be returning in the first issue. Now, Cassandra Kane and the Kanes, different spelling, I don't think that's... The problem was that it was just one of those weird things where, oh, this is going to get brought up in Gates of Gotham, Oh, and by the way, Cassandra Kane will also be showing up. I don't think it had anything to do with Cassandra Kane is somehow related to Bruce's mother. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not, too. Right, Although, Batman, actually, you... she technically is. Because if Bruce adopted her, then oh, yeah, she's... <laughs> now you're going to go into this. Batman Europa was brought up, and Ezra said that it would, it would be released sometime in the next ten years. Gail Simone was asked about her episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold featuring the Birds of Prey and when it would hit the States. She responded that there was a bit of animation that needed to be changed. It's got a lot of double, triple, quadruple entendres in it. question was asked about whether or not we would be seeing Renee Montoya soon. Simone said not right away. She later corrected herself on Twitter saying that Renee will be appearing into upcoming issues of Birds of Prey. Chris Burnham said that fans should reread Batman The Return to see some things that will be coming up in Batman Incorporated. This was in response to a fan asking when we were going to see Oracle walk again. Burnham also said that the issue 9 of Incorporated will feature Batgirl going to England to infiltrate an all-girls school. So, that was everything from that panel. Clearly, Chris Burnham's got a lot to say about what's going to be happening in his issues because he knows what's going on. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff he can't talk about as well. When we get to the next panel, we're going to cover even more of what the what the creators can't talk about. More Huntress. I just hope she's written better. I'll kill you. 
<laughs> Not that better. All right. Also on March 18th, the last major panel for the Batman Universe was the DC Icons panel. This panel was again led by Eddie Berganza, with Dan DiDio, Phil Hester, Don Kramer, Paul Cornell, Scott Snyder, Kyle Higgins, Ryan Benjamin, and Tony Daniel attending. There was again a little bit of information about the upcoming things happening in not only the Batman Universe, but the entire DC Universe with the impending Flashpoint event set to take place this summer. It was said that a lot of the books will take different directions after Flashpoint, but the remark was too vague to know how big of an effect the Batman universe would be affected. But the the problem is that between the discussion of Flashpoint being an alternate universe, crack in time, a kind of a different take on different things, Dan DiDio did say that a lot of people have asked about Elseworlds in the past, and Flashpoint kind of derived from the idea of bringing the Elseworlds back, but in a defined manner where it was contained in a specific story. So, who knows exactly what's going to happen with Flashpoint, but they did keep stressing that things were going to change in the entire DC Universe after Flashpoint. But I don't understand how they could actually change things drastically inside at least the Batman Universe because it's so contained from entire DC universe. Well, they did it in Final Crisis. Yeah, whatever happens in Flashpoint is going to happen in Red Robin from now on. Everything in Final Crisis is happening in Red Robin and now, like, like, like Red Robin will be fighting, like, the top and Captain Cold and those guys. Alright, so then, getting into the news, Dan DiDio did say that the Outsider was taken in a direction away from the Batman universe and towards Superman's side because they needed to expand that universe. He did say that Batman will be back in the final issue to dismantle the team. Thank uh, God. <laughs> I wish that Dan DiDio would have told somebody besides everybody, you know, 12 months after the fact that uh, this was not going to be in the Batman universe because, for the most part, even a year ago at C2E2 when Outsiders was talked about, it was still considered a Batman universe book by Mike Martz. So that's kind of an issue to begin with fact that the back group editor was claiming that it was still a Batman book and Didio, the writer on the series, was saying is saying that the, the book was taken over to the Superman side because they wanted to expand the Superman universe really <laughs> doesn't say a whole lot about the communication over there. Well, what does he know? He's just the writer. Alright, uh, Tony Daniels said that Two-Face and Riddler will be playing roles in upcoming stories. Really? Uh, not, I'm not set, super surprised by that, considering both those characters are appearing on covers for the issues coming up in the future. <laughs> um, this is kind of what I was hinting at when I was talking about earlier, about how little the creators were able to say about the upcoming things. Um, Scott Snyder specifically had kind of like this... I wouldn't say it was scripted, but almost every time... We were at a panel, and he was—he talked about what was coming up in Detective Comics. It was the exact same speech every single time. It didn't change. So, I've got—I got to really kind of wonder about that as far as what exactly could have happened. With the reason why everybody is so scripted as far as what they can and can't say. Um, Nothing will ever be the same. True. Uh, Kyle Higgins states that Grayson's strengths are teaming up with the family. In Gates of Gotham number one, we will see Damien, Tim, and Cassandra Kane. Uh, 
when Batman and Robin was brought up, Dan DiDio said that there was not much more that could be discussed about the series past what has been solicited because of the storylines story for Batman Incorporated and Flashpoint. Leading us back to our earlier points where how exactly is Flashpoint going to affect what's going on? Will Flashpoint erase the knowledge of Bruce Wayne funding Batman from everyone's minds? Not bloody likely. That better uh, not a, be it. A fan asked if we would be seeing a Nightwing in the future, which to which Dio responded hesitantly that he can't talk about it, but Nightwing is not dead. Uh, the Batman creators seem to all look at each other about the comment with confused thoughts. <laughs> Um, okay. Now we do know that there's another, there is another Nightwing in the Superman universe. He could have been talking about that character. Who knows? But the fan specifically was asking, will anybody be moving up the ranks in the Batman family and take the role of Nightwing? And he just said, "Well, I can't talk about that." And it was weird because literally, I looked at the writers on the panel, Tony Daniels, Scott Snyder, and they just looked at each other like, "What? What's going on?" So. Yeah, that reminds me of like when someone asked about Cassandra Kane in San Diego last summer, and they all, from what I hear, they all looked at each other worriedly and like said, "Uh, sure." All of them, like there was like hesitant silence. Till I think it was Mike Mart said, "I think he said look for her in November or something like that." I don't remember, but yeah, I, it was, I, he was talking. He did. I remember him. He, I think he did say November, but he was referring to the road home because at that point. I think they already had Road Home mapped out and said, okay, finally, we, we need to just throw it in there. To shut Donovan up. <laughs> All right, uh, Dan Dio did mention that there is plenty of pain headed for Batman's life. No word on which Batman he was referring to, since there's multiple Batman. Paul Cornell was asked if we would be seeing any more Night and Squire, to which he commented about the lack of sales preventing that from occurring. And that was all of the news. So clearly the biggest news of the weekend that Cassandra Cain will be returning to the Batman universe. Not a whole lot of other news. That, that I mean, there's hints and suggestions of what could occur based on what was talked about. But for the most part, there was just... Everybody seemed hush-hush. Put aside the Batman universe itself. You know, at the DC Icons panel, the creators on Wonder Woman were there. Don Kramer and Phil Hester. And Paul Cornell was talking about action comics, and almost every single one of them, when they were asked about something specific coming up in the story arcs, they said, well, um, you'll have to wait and see. Or, well, I can't really talk about it, but there's some really exciting stuff coming up, and you really got to check it out. No, there's only a point to how much you can promote something without actually promoting it. There's only so much that a writer or artist's words can be taken for as far as how good something actually is. You don't see Grant Morrison doing that. Just saying. Yeah, no doubt. It's it's just it's the point now where it's like you know you you kind of want to stop ta- asking them about anything because it's almost like they don't have enough good material. You almost fear that they don't have enough good material to really hype up. So like um can't talk about it, but we'll see it when it comes out. Um hmm I don't know. Yeah, it's that's a bit like Grant Morrison. You can barely get a book out, let alone advertise it. True. Alright, so basically the other thing that happened at C2E2, we did get a number of interviews with uh, five different creators that work on Batman books. We did interview Ryan Benjamin, the artist on Batman Beyond. We interviewed Scott Snyder, writer of Detective Comics and Gates of Gotham. 
We interviewed Kyle Higgins, which is also the co-writer of Batman Gates of Gotham, coming out in May. Uh, we talked to Tony Daniel, Batman artist and writer. And we also talked to Chris Burnham, who, as we know, is working on issues 4, 6, and 7 of Batman Incorporated, as well as future Bat books, as he pointed out. So you can check out all those interviews on the website, as well as on YouTube, since that's where they're posted. So check them out. You guys ask for interviews, we deliver so that is all the C2E2 news. It was a great event, much bigger than last year. There was a lot more exhibitors, and I think personally, based on how many people came last year, I think there was a lot more people who showed up this year. Still, obviously, not on the size of attendance as San Diego Comic-Con. I don't think it'll ever really get up to that point because it's not in the summer when a lot of people are off of school, and it's summer. I mean, everybody has vacations in the summer, so... I don't think it's going to ever get up to that point. But at the same time, it was much bigger. I look forward to next year. Uh, thank you to everybody at C2E2 for organizing a, such a great event and moving the convention over to the west side of the McCormick Place. Those of you who live in Chicago and attended, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Compared to last year, the west side is a much, much, much better place to have the convention. Anyway. Chicago Talk put aside, that is all the C2E2 news. We only have one other piece of news, and that's from March 21st. Fabian Asiza again talked with Comic Book Resources this time around about the future of Red Robin. I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Josh will read for Fabian Asiza. Red Robin number 23 is the first chapter of Seven Days of Death. What can you tell us about both the tournament and the story arc? I introduced the idea of the tournament during the Red Robin Road Home issue. The basic idea was to create a mystery that frustrates Tim because of all of its seemingly random nature, its international scope and appeal to the thrill-seeking nature of many assassins, as well as their sense of greed, which means it will draw a lot of killers out of the woodwork. But the most frustrating part, as we'll see, is growing evidence that the tournament has possibly been going on for a very long time and it had escaped the notice of the Bat family. I like putting Tim in situations that challenge his need for control, letting the bad guys know more than he does. We've seen old villains pop up. Will we see other members of the Bat family swing in to help Tim during seven days? Yes, we'll see Dick Grayson in the opening chapter, and we'll see Cassandra Kane in the story as well. According to the solicitations, Red Robin might be breaking Scarab out of jail. First he frees Lynx from the cops, now Scarab. What's with him spraying all the ladies from prison? Notice a pattern there? That was meant to both play on the arrogance of thinking you can make the right call by making the wrong decision, and also to set up potential problems down the road between Tim and Commissioner Gordon. Does Tim's hit list come out of his long-term approach to crime fighting? The hit list was just to get the ball rolling. The Neon Knights Foundation is designed to work legitimate channels to rehabilitate criminals' use or to get to them before they become hardened criminals. He's working with the Titans and forming his own covert brand of operatives like Cassandra Kane is also part of his plan to create a network of loyal trust agents in the field. Ultimately, the bigger picture I see for Tim is one I will never get the chance to display in print since in terms of real publishing time versus comic book fiction time, I'll never get to writing a 30-year-old Tim unless I'm writing Red Robin, issue 3,450, which, you know, what, with renumbering all the time and everything, not really likely. <laughs> Needless to say, the longer-term plan for him would be the make him king of the world. Wait, what? Okay, so there's a nice reference to Titanic by Fabian Nassiza. The one thing that we can get out of this interview is not only will Cassandra Kane be in Batman Geats of Gotham, as we heard at C2E2, 
but she will also be in Red Robin. So it looks like Cassandra Kane is going to be making a number of appearances in the Bat Books in the very near future. But Azrael will still dominate appearance lists. I gotta say, the one pattern that I noticed is that they're all women. You like, oh, like, like you have Scarab, but now I think I think they mentioned Promise or something. And it's like, oh, notice a pattern here? Yes, they're all morally gray. Well, I'm still hooked. <laughs> Many of us loser geeks are still hooked on the fact that he said that Tim was going to get it uh, sooner or later in his title. So that's the pattern I noticed. All right, so that is all of the news. Let's get right into our comic reviews, and let's start off with Batman Streets of Gotham number 21, the final issue. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Batman Streets of Gotham, number 21, written by Paul Dini, art and cover by Dustin Wen, with Derek Friedolfs as the inker. Now, this is the conclusion of not only the Hush story, but also the conclusion of Batman Streets of Gotham and Paul Dini's run on the series. So how does this issue fare out? Let's uh, figure out what happened first. So we start off the issue with Judson Pierce coming through the door and seeing that Tommy Elliott has actually uh, knocked out Dr. Death. Uh, Judson Pierce is then shot, and Tommy Elliott disables the device that is going to release the toxic gas and ends up changing it around so that everyone in the building will die, including Judson Pierce and Dr. Death. Judson Pierce is laying on the floor, bleeding, and he's locked in the room by Tommy Elliott. Tommy Elliott says it's about time to take out Marchetti and... Mr. Zzz. Yeah, Mr. Zzz. He thought that he will use Jeffrey Carter as a human shield if he needs to when he's leaving. He walks into the room, finds Mr. Zzz and Marchetti already taken out, and next thing you know, he's knocked over the head by Jeffrey Carter. Very unusual. We then cut to Judson Pierce, who is clearly locked in the room and is pretty pissed about being locked in the room. And we see a flashback once again with him going to see... Sal Guzzo after the entire event that occurred in the last issue with the Justice Society of America showing up to make sure that the situation at the Tompkins Clinic was taken care of. We find out that Sal Guzzo has actually uh, kidnapped the boy who was trying to tell the cops about him and he has made him his I don't know a better way to put this other than Sal Guzzo is a is a molester. I guess that's there's no really better way to put it and he's been beating this kid and using him for sexual acts Judson Pierce says he needs to get out of town and Sal Guzzo says well the thing is I'm actually going to be getting out of town myself and the cops said they'll give me a 24 hour head start as long as I give them whoever had the idea about the Tompkins Clinic next thing you know Judson Pierce is uh, in court going to jail and we cut back to the current times where Pierce is waking Dr. Death and saying, how can we get out of here? Dr. Death says, well, I always have some things. Uh, I'll get us out of here. He mixes some chemicals together so that the door explodes. Alfred alerts Batman of what's going on. We then see Dr. Death, who says, Pierce, we're free. And we see Pierce, who has his skin essentially melting off his face as it appears because of the chemicals mixed together. Then we see Tommy Elliott, who's now tied up, 
and he slowly determines that uh, Jeffrey Carter is not Jeffrey Carter, and it's actually Jane Doe. Jane Doe says that she has been convinced that uh, ever since Bruce Wayne spoke in her favor to release her from prison, she had a fascination about him, was trying to figure out exactly what was going on. Uh, she then said that she started studying Bruce Wayne just before he announced that he was funding Batman. So, she figured, well, the best person to take over would be none other than Bruce Wayne. So that's what she's done. She's cut Tommy Elliott's face off of his face. And uh, is now going to be Bruce Wayne. Just as she's about to kill Tommy Elliott, who has no face, Batman takes Jane Doe out very quickly. And we then see somebody, don't really know who, I'm assuming it was uh, Alfred, based on a couple panels later. Mm-hmm. Um, Alfred with a shotgun and gas mask, who finds Judson Pierce basically melted skin and all. Bruce Wayne has essentially saved Tommy Elliot, and we cut back to the Batcave where Alfred and him are talking back and forth, and they are trying to figure out exactly what happened. As it turns out, Tommy Elliot's father was not killed by Judson Pierce, only shot, and that uh, drove him to drinking because he was forever associated with, you know, the bad society of Gotham City. Um, At Blackie Prison, we see Judson Pierce, who has a lot of his skin melted off his body, but it turns out that the chemicals actually ate away the cancer that was affecting him that was going to cause him to die. He's also a lot stronger than he's felt in years as well. He's in prison, but he also has Mr. Zimarchetti with him, and it looks like he has no problem getting the respect that he believes he's deserved. Uh, Back at Arkham Asylum, we see Tommy Elliott, who's talking to a doctor and telling the doctor, Bruce Wayne is Batman. I know it, and slowly Tommy Elliott figures out that this is the worst possible situation because no one is going to believe that Bruce Wayne is Batman because of the confession Bruce Wayne has made to the world about funding Batman. Every bit of money that's ever been spent on it can be accounted for. So there's nothing that we can do. Hush is eternally stuck with the uh, the bandages on his face from now on since he has no face. And that is the end of Batman Streets of Gotham. Alright, so Batman Streets of Gotham number 21. This was an interesting issue. You could look at this two different ways. One, the story was drawn out a lot longer than it needed to. Clearly, this did not have to last 21 issues to get the end result that occurred in this issue. Do I think this issue as a whole delivered? Yes, I do. I think the situation with Sal Guzzo and the fact that he's using this boy that he kidnapped for sexual acts, I find that kind of out of place. I don't really think that was needed. I think it was kind of something that we could have done without especially since it played nothing into the final aspect of the story. Nothing at all, other than to fill, you know, a page of information up. I do think it's poetic justice that now Hush is permanently having to wear those bandages because he has no face. It was kind of cool to see Jane Doe make the comment about, wow, uh, Bruce Wayne, clearly uh, we we all know now how you've been able to stay so youthful. It's because you've had all these plastic surgeries, which, uh, you know, again... Clearly not Bruce Wayne, but it was interesting nonetheless. A couple of the issues I had was there was a small problem with the art. Dustin Wen again, does a good job, 
but there is a couple issues. Number one, when Bruce Wayne is in the Batcave talking with Alfred in front of the Bat computer, it does not look like Bruce Wayne. It looks like Dick Grayson or someone much younger than Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. Especially since we had Bruce Wayne as a perfect version portrayed by Tommy Elliot in pages before. This character looks a lot younger, so it's undetermined of whether or not Dustin Wen drew this as it was supposed to be Bruce Wayne or if it was supposed to be Dick Grayson. It appears to me as if it was supposed to be Dick Grayson. Of course, you know, Paul Dini going out uh, has to create one last character. Now we have Judson Pierce who could show up in the future, which he will probably never show up, but he could because that's what... Paul Dini has done almost this entire series is create random characters and with the hopes that they'll show up in the future. But uh, I think the Judson Pierce, I think it ended well because, yes, he's got some problems with the Waynes, but now he'll be more focused on Elliot, and there is an avenue that can be approached in the future. I don't think we're going to be seeing Tommy Elliot in a main role for quite some time. I think it's about this, his time to, to curl up and to relax a little bit, uh, especially with Paul Dini not being, not writing the stories. Nobody else seems to be caring about Tommy Elliott right now except for him. So, um, with that, I think the issue is good. Uh, Batman Streets of Gotham as a whole, 21 issues, probably could have been done in eight issues, and I would have been content with it. I'm going to just give a rating for this issue alone and give it three and a half out of five batterings. For the series, though, I'm only going to give this series one and a half out of five batterings because it was not worth paying three dollars every single month, and in some, in most cases, paying three ninety nine because you got that co-feature as well. This series was honestly a waste of time that they could have done in two story arcs in a different book instead of creating a whole new series for it. Yeah, I also think that they could have just uh, done this as a story arc or two in Detective, especially since uh, after b- the initial Batwoman run and Detective ended. Detective was kind of just in a transition or limbo for a while. Heck, they could have even done this in Batman Confidential. I mean, Batman Confidential needed the sales, didn't it? I don't know if all this needed its own series. Um, Streets of Gotham was fun while it lasted. You know, it wasn't, you know, painful all the time. It was just, you know... It became almost like another Batman Confidential, though, when it, it turned out that all these people were having, you know, late late jobs and needed fill-ins all the time. It was almost like a new creative team every other month. But this issue on its own was okay. I don't really know if I like this as the ending to Tommy Elliott's current story, and if it's believable that he'll that he would that he could say that Bruce Wayne is Batman and nobody at all would buy it and believe him, especially given who he is especially since Bruce Wayne's kind of putting a target on himself as well, but I suppose that's a suspension of disbelief that I may have to take. I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. This issue actually really surprised me, and I was uh, quite blown away by it, uh, to be honest. Um, it's, it's almost impossible for me to disagree with Dustin and Josh on the series as a whole, because... It really could have been done in, inside of two story arcs in Detective Comics. I think we said before that I, I initially saw this as like the continuation of, of Dini's Detective Run. And in a lot of ways it is, but then they came out and said it was going to be like a Hush series, which if you read the entirety of the series, doesn't really ring true whatsoever. And Paul Dini took a lot of vacations every now and then. So it like it quickly became a very frustrating series, but... 
in the terms of the story, settle, settling this story arc, I thought this did very, very, very well. For the issue as a whole, I'm going to give it a four and a half out of five batterings just because the scene where, where Tommy Elliott has his face ripped off by Jane Doe, that really punched me. Like It was like a punch to the face to me. I, I didn't see that coming. It was just so well written. And from then on, it was like, this issue was, was excellent. But in terms of like how the series was, I'm not sure if I'm going to give a grade, but I will just give my thoughts that this series, at the end of the day, wasn't really needed, which is a shame because it was – they had some really good stories here, but they could have been good stories in other titles and boosted those titles as well. So it makes feelings at the end of Streets of Gotham, but this issue was excellent, in my opinion. I thought this issue was definitely better than the last one, but still not the strongest events to the title. I think they could have done a lot more of it. But the, um, I think the main achievement of this issue was Hush no longer has Bruce Wayne's face, which is kind of... He's got everything led up to that one point. And now he's back in Arkham, so hopefully we won't see him for a while. The only thing I didn't understand is Jane Doe cut off his face and then puts it on like a mask. But she also manages to sprout hair. Because she doesn't cut off his, like, scalp him. So I don't know where that came from. But, uh, <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> other than that, I mean, um, yeah, I still, I'm amazed that Baldini managed to get another supervillain in there in the last three pages. But, um, and, yeah, I felt really uncomfortable reading that scene with Sal abusing the kid. And it, was like, it was a bit out of place and almost too dark, which I, I never thought I'd really say. But overall, I think... It was an alright issue, and uh, I think I am going to miss the series on the whole, because it did have some very good stories in there, in amongst a lot of filler. But uh, I'll give the issue three in, three out of five batterings. Alright, and over on the website, Eric gave the issue five out of five batterings, so that is going to give the issue three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Superman Batman number 82. Crypto's just feeling a little overprotective. Aren't you, boy? I don't know. I've always considered him a good judge of character. Superman Batman, issue 82, part two of the Sorcerer King's arc, written by Cullen Bunn with art by Criss Cross. We open up the issue in present day where Batman, Detective Chimp, and Doctor Occult are investigating who's behind the supernatural crime of the millennium. They arrive at the headquarters of the Acolytes of the Void, and Batman enters. He makes short work of the cult who have very little magic and discovers the reason for the strange goings-on is something to do with the final spell. He also discovers the existence of the Witch's Highway and Batman Detective Chimp and Dr. Occult decide to follow the lead. But first they need a witch as a guide. We cut to the future where Superman, the magic Batman and Nina are wandering through the dilapidated metropolis when Magic Batman explains what happened after the final spell was cast. Four evil sorcerers made a deal with the Dark Forces for limitless power in exchange for the sun. Many of the world's magicians fought to undo the spell, and even though many of them died, they managed to breathe new life into the sun. However, the radiation from the new sun destroyed all of the modern electronics. At this point, the trio are attacked by the Creeper and his Grundy men. During the fights, Superman finds out that he's no longer invulnerable, but the new sun has given him different powers. After Magic Batman calls the Batwing, a large dragon that attacks the Grundy Men, Superman banishes the enemies with his sword. 
We cut back to Batman, Detective Jimp, and Dr. Occult, who are exploring the sewers until they find Clary and the Witch Boy. End of part two. Alright, Superman Batman number 82. Overall, I, th I, I like this issue. Uh, unlike most Superman Batman stories, I'm finding this interesting, and the fact that it's going to last for five issues, may, it may be drawn out maybe one issue too many, but uh, the story is kind of interesting to me. And I don't know what it is, but I really like the character Detective Chimp. I, 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 I really like that character, and we obviously never see him inside the Batman universe because how many times are we going to see a talking chimpanzee in Detective Comics or any other bad book for that matter? I find this story interesting. I'm liking it. The art reminds me a lot of what we've what we saw in the in the late '90s. Um, Chris Cross is. You know, it's it's just classic art. There's it's not insanely out there. It's it's just good art. I think one of the best things is Detective Chimp, and uh, the other thing I really am, am liking is uh, Batman in the Future's costume. I I think that looks really cool too. I am interested to see how more how this plays out, and I'm looking forward to the next issue. Three and a half out of five batterings. The art was uh, okay. I think, you know, with all the stuff going on here, like Detective Chimp and Clary on the Witch Boy, I, uh, I don't know if I'm going to want to read about them for a four-part story arc, especially since it feels like they already got a lot of the stuff out of the way this issue. Like, I don't know how they're going to be able to uh, – they might have to pad this out to make it into a four-part story because it feels like this is something that they can just conclude next issue, but I don't know. Um, I'm going to give it two and a half out of five batterings. Slightly interested, but we'll see. Uh, I like this issue a lot better than the last issue. I really like this the beginning scene with Batman Detective Chimp as well. Um, I'm with this, and I think Detective Chimp is pretty awesome. And I liked how I tell Cullen Bunn was able to write Batman. Just It was a simple scene that in these days I think would be overwritten, but it was a classic Batman scene the way he took out all these guys. And they had that, that demon person go behind him, and he just knocked him off. So he's like, like I said, parlor tricks. No more hocus-pocus talk. That seems like Batman to me, and it was a very well-written scene. The art was very solid. The story is a little still... It's, it's not engaging me as much, but it is a little more than it was last issue, just because I liked the intro scene. So I'm giving this a little bit more of a chance with the storyline... And there's really nothing wrong with the story. I'm just, I'm just not very inclined to futuristic or even magical, sort and sorcery based kind of things. But I'll give this three and a half, or no, no, three out of five batterings. It seems like Ryan Q. Miller set the trend for using Clary and the Witch Boy recently because I think we had him in this um, now as well. We had him in Young Justice, and I think he's doing um, the Dark Knight as well. But uh, I wasn't as keen on this issue as the last one. I thought the art's fine. I think it's a, it can be a bit inconsistent, but during the fight sequences, it was definitely easier to read than the last issue. And um, I get a bit confused with, because there's so many characters in this series. It doesn't feel like it's strictly Superman, Batman title. And uh, with the magic, it's not something I'm used to reading, but so far it hasn't put me off. And um, I'm not quite as interested as I was at the end of the last issue, but there was a mention to the Justice League, so I'm looking forward to seeing them. So I'll give it two out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Superman Batman number 82 three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman number 708. You are completely out of your 
your mind. Written by David Hine, illustrated by Gilliam March. This issue starts off with uh, Dick Grayson, also known as Batman in Gotham City, taking down a minor thug who was about to shoot down some cops. And he's being pretty much his Dick Grayson self, you know, uh, taunting the guy and being very sarcastic, you know, the kind of person Dick Grayson is. However, if you were to keep your eyes on him as he walked to the Batmobile, he grabs his chest, calls himself stupid, and starts groaning in pain, not letting Alfred on the comic know what's really wrong with him. He's having flashes of a, a vision of a red-haired boy getting beat up at Haley's Circus that he swears never actually happened in his lifetime. And when he wakes up, he's back in the Batmobile examining – he's back in the, the Bat Bunker examining the wound on his chest, which is starting to form into the shape of a bat. The wound he's examining was the wound given him by Azrael many moons ago back in Death's Dark Knight miniseries. Dick and Alfred chat for a little bit over dinner when Dick sees that the Crusader is tearing apart the red light district streets of Gotham and pretty much saying that all the sinners will be punished and the same stuff he's been saying in the Azrael tale. Dick races to the rescue as Batman and is joined by Red Robin and Catwoman. They try to rescue the people in the side of a burning building, and when Red Robin and Batman are about to confront the Crusader, they are all accosted by Azrael, also known as Michael Lane. Uh, Batman wants to know what's going on with the Crusader, and Azrael explains that the Crusader is only passing judgment upon those who are unrighteous. Batman tells him that this, that, well, this is not what we do, and you need to decide if he's with us or against us. Dick also wants to make the decision for himself and not have Bruce or anybody make, help him make the decision for him. So he tells Tim and Selina to help him take him down. The Crusader flashes a gigantic firelight in the sky, which blinds everybody, and they make their escape. Dick swears that he needs to figure out what these visions of his mind mean, as well as how he's going to handle Azrael within the next 24 hours. Or, as Azrael said, all of Gotham will burn through its impurities. And we cut to, before we end the issue, we cut to Rachel Ghoul and his minions setting upon Fireball with several terawatts full of solar energy for him to absorb. And he says that once all the heroes in Gotham have been assembled and failed the test that Azrael will put on them, Gotham will indeed burn. And that is Batman 708. Alright, Batman number 708. Clearly this was not an issue that was as it was solicited since we expected to see a Riddler story from Tony Daniel and we ended up getting an Azrael story by David Hine. I was content with the way Azrael ended. Did not really miss... I'm not looking forward to the Sin and Salvation storyline because I'm just sick of seeing Azrael. And I don't even understand how this character is going to end. I think there were some cool elements that Azrael brought to the table with crossing over into Batman and having the issue focus... Well, it did focus on Dick Grayson like the Batman series does, but... I just I don't like the direction that the story arc's going and the fact that they added an issue and nobody knew that they're adding an issue is ridiculous. Um, but besides that, I, I don't really think the art was that great. Uh, Gillian March is great at drawing women, but he's not so great at drawing some other stuff because I didn't really find um, his interpretation of Dick Grayson or Tim Drake all that remarkable. Um, and the story itself, I mean, especially towards the end, it just seemed like okay, now what? You've introduced this story, we know that it's going to play out over three issues because each one of them are going to be tested. Thank you for laying this out. Thank you for wasting our, letting us waste our money on a book to tell us what's going to happen in the next three issues instead of 
giving us a different, completely different story. I think this issue is completely unnecessary, half a battering. Ow. Uh, <laughs> like Dustin, I'm pretty much wary of Asriel, and now we're gaining him in the other books. I did like how we got some, you know, kind of personal conflict and doubt from Dick, which is one of the things I wanted to see in some of these Dick as Batman stories, you know, is stuff that you can read the story and, you know, with it and you can tell that it's a Dick and Batman story and not something that you can easily just replace Bruce in all the panels and it wouldn't make a difference. I'm not excited about this upcoming Asriel crossover, which this is kind of beginning of this whole, he will burn Gotham if everyone doesn't atone for their sins thing. So, uh, but the art wasn't too bad, and I really don't care that we didn't get to see the Riddler this issue, because he's one of those overplayed people in this era right now. He's good, he's bad, he's in the Sirens, he's not in the Sirens, whatever. Although Asriel's not much better either. Two out of five batterings. I like this issue. <laughs> I think that, um, despite the fact that it's Azrael, again, that um, the plus side to this was the fact that it wasn't Azrael-focused. Yeah, he has a major part in it, but this was a Dick Grayson story. And I think that the focus on Dick Grayson and how Dick Grayson is dealing with all this as being Batman was very interesting. This I agree with Justin. This is the type of Dick Grayson Batman story I want to see. And really and truly, if you had not been following the Azrael storyline, uh, you didn't need to because you, could, you got all it here. Really, you could have not had in an alternate universe, you could have had the Azrael comic book not exist and still kind of had this story, I think, with um, just a, a brief flashback or caption or two to explain a little bit, a little bit more. Um, I really like Gillian March as an artist. I think he is a really good combination of Graham Nolan from the 90s, 90s uh, Detective Comics run and Castillo or uh, Claudio Castanelli, who was uh, an artist from the DC vs. Marvel miniseries back in the 90s. And I think that his artwork's very good. I like the way he draws um, Dick Grayson. I think that he looks—he makes him look a little bit beefier. But I think that in this day and age, Dick Grayson probably would be a little bit thicker. But he's still very, very athletic. There are some shots of Batman here where he—you can tell it's Dick Grayson, not Bruce Wayne, in my opinion. Um, this was clearly an intro story to you know the the Sin of Salvation arc, but. I thought this was pretty solid. I don't really have anything against what's going on here because it's not focusing on the really annoying character of Azrael. It's focusing on the awesome character of Dick Grayson. So I'm giving this four out of five batterings. Yeah, I'm, I'm siding slightly more with Donovan in that this is the Finally. first. Finally, <laughs> <laughs> this is the first Azrael story I've ever read, which I actually quite enjoyed, especially the first half, which actually really got me hooked with the um, with the references back to Dick getting stabbed with the sword and um, I haven't really read much Asriel uh, before we start, I started doing this podcast yeah so even though I didn't really know what was going on I managed to pick it up in the issue and I actually found it really interesting it did feel a bit out of place after Tony Daniels but it still felt like a Batman story with Dick Grayson as the focus and the art was serviceable but it's not quite my cup of tea I find it quite odd how Dick's having these visions, apparently, but we have no reference of any of the other Dick Grayson titles, like Detective or anything. But in Detective, he's still being affected by that fear toxin. So Dick Grayson's got to be going through a really horrible time at the moment, because if he's not sort of dreaming of women trying to eat him, then he's dreaming of killing children. But um, 
I think I'm going to give this issue three out of five battering, but I'm not really looking forward to the crossover. And over on the website, Riddle Me This gave it two out of five battering, so that is going to give Batman number 708 two out of five batterings. Moving into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight number two. Did you miss me? Great speech, Oswald. My name is not Oswald. It's Penguin. I am not a human being. I am an animal. Cold-blooded. Crank the AC. Where are my lists? Bring me the name. Okay. Well, Batman is being confronted in the Iceberg Lounge by the Penguin and his henchmen, and Batman wants to know where Don Golden is. And it's actually getting to his head. He's not keeping his cool. He's going after Penguin, not letting up, and finally, like, beats up Penguin, and not just usual Batman giving someone a beating. He's being really violent. Alfred's telling him over the comm, Sir, what are you doing? Stop. And even Penguin's like, what the heck? I thought you were one of the good guys. And it takes Killer Croc, who's now working for the Penguin, to sneak up behind Batman and stop him before this beating is over. Meanwhile, in the alley outside, somebody with a red hoodie steals the Batmobile. Something's going on with Ragman in the streets as he's watching people in the shadows. But before he strikes, we get uh, Jason Blood, really, really angsty, saying, All right, I cannot delay any longer. I must turn into Etrigan to, you know, help solve this case. Which is what he does. Batman wakes up tied up after uh, Croc, after Croc, you know, gonked him on the head. And, you know, instead of just killing him, he's tied up and there's something attached to him. I think it's a bunch of bombs and... From what Penguin says over the TV, as Killer Croc slaps Batman awake, bombs and everything else, it's attached to his heart, I guess, and if his heart rate goes too fast or if he gets too angry, he's going to die, and Don Golden, who's having unspeakable stuff uh, shown happen to her on the TV that we don't see but Batman sees, she's going to die too if Batman doesn't calm down. Speaking of calming down, there's someone who is not calm at all running in the alley away from this monstrous Killer Croc version of Ragman to be continued. Alright, Batman the Dark Knight number two. Um, where do I start? I think there's a couple elements of this story that are interesting. I think Killer Croc is, is a good character when used as, like, when he's normally, when he's working for somebody. You know, we saw it back when with the Joker graphic novel where he was essentially working for someone, and I think he does very good in that role, because, I mean, the guy's not a criminal genius. He's not going to be doing, planning ultimate plans of destruction for Gotham City, or plans of taking things over. He works best when he's working for someone. The other element I like is, I, I really like the idea of incorporating a number of different characters within the story. But, with that being said, we... We see Etrigan the Demon, and we know he's going to be in future issues. We don't know how that this plays into it, but we know that he's going to be in it. Penguin appears. Here's the thing with Penguin. I'm not a big fan of David Finch's interpretation of Penguin. And I know that there's other interpretations out there that are very similar to this type that Penguin has done. But I'm, I don't really like it. Um... The other thing that I'm not a real big fan of is there's a lot of very odd placed references to events that occurred in Batman movies. 
not only does Batman have the situation with Penguin, and you know he's making the the wah wah sound that you know he made in Batman Returns, but in the same issue, the Batmobile is hacked by somebody, and is is stolen. We Ugh. saw that in Batman Returns too. We see that the area that these three I don't know if they're homeless people or what, but these guys are walking around is called the Narrows, which <laughs> we also remember from Batman Begins. There's just these very odd references to a lot of different things that have occurred in Batman movies that just seems out of place. I don't know the end outcome of this story, so obviously, you know, there could be some elements that don't make a lot of sense. But there's, to me... The overreaction of Batman, obviously breaking Penguin's arms and legs in half, is a little excessive, even for Batman. And if someone decides to say, well, Dawn Golden was his true love, which I'm sure Josh will mention when he reviews this book, that clearly has happened a thousand times. I don't really need to see Batman freaking out about the love of his life for the 50 gazillionth time. We're already seeing that in Batman Incorporated number four, which we'll talk about later. But somebody in the editorial staff of DC Comics needs to say, hey, listen, guess what? Batman does not have 15,000 loves of his life, and he doesn't freak out about every single woman he ever dated. That's just what needs to happen. The other thing is, I really like the character of Ragman. I'm actually a big fan of Ragman. I, I own a lot of the comics that Ragman has appeared in. I've read everything that Ragman has appeared in, and that's why I like that he was in issue the, the first issue of the story arc over in Superman Batman, because I like that character. And I also like the co-feature. I really like that co-feature. But, I don't know what is going on with this character. Ragman is a good character. And he's being portrayed as this creature who's killing people. What's the deal with that? And the last, the last panel where Ragman, like Josh said is like a Killer Croc version, seems a little ridiculous. And also the character of Ragman seems to be being played as this dumb character, which Ragman is not a dumb character. He's very smart because he has the knowledge of all the people that he's ever taken the souls of. So there's just a lot of problems with the interpretations of these characters that Finch is, is doing. Now, for the most part, if I'm not paying attention to the art and I just read through the story, it is an enjoyable story. I, but the problem is I'm so distracted by the interpretations of these various characters and these different events that are occurring that it's off-putting the actual story that's being told. Earlier when uh, we were talking about the possibility of Dan DiDio bringing in a second artist on the book, I would actually be in favor to that over the writer because I'm interested to see how this story plays out to a certain degree, but... The interpretations of the characters are just really annoying me. So with this issue, although I think it was good, and I think there was a lot of things I wasn't very fond of, I'm still going to give it three and a half out of five bad ratings. I think that the Ragman Killer Croc thing is do- is tying into that thing that happened the first issue, which was so long ago. Not sure what's going on with Ragman. That would be cool if it was tying into whatever happened in Detective Comics with that kid getting injected with the Killer Croc serum. Otherwise, it's just really random that, like, we have two similar things happening at once. Oh, yeah, two similar things happen at once. Batman giving somebody a beating because, you know, he can't control himself because the love of his life has been captured. Oh, yes, we're not – 
Yeah, this is like the third time that this has happened, like within the span of a few months. It's my gosh. It's you it's not the love of your life if you if you feel that way about every single girl. Like when Ra's al Ghul, you know, kidnapped Vicky and, you know, the the road home he wasn't or yeah, the road home he wasn't like, What? Not Vicky. Anybody but Vicky. Ah oh. but like ever since then, any time that there's been a girl who's appeared, she's like the super special girl in Batman's life. So yeah. I did like him going a little crazy being up the penguin. That was kinda cool to watch. I just didn't like the reason for it. Uh the kid stealing the Batmobile. It looked like it was done way too easily. Like Batman like parked it and like left the keys in there or something with the window <laughs> rolled down. <laughs> it shouldn't be that easy to, you know, steal the Batmobile. If it was, if Batman is that stupid that like he can steal his like, you know, million dollar armored car like that, then he'd probably have been shot, you know, by now. So I I don't know. The story was still fun, and I, I'm not. I don't really like, you know, the way that the penguin is drawn here. It's really, bleh, but not sure what's going on with Ragman. But you know, I'm along for this ride. It's fun. I'll give it three out of five batterings. Oh, that was funny. Yeah, this is a very, very, very mixed issue for me too. I love the art. I think that this is how artistically, I'm artistically speaking. With the posing and the layouts and the, and the coloring and even the gadgets with that crazy back grapple at the beginning, this is how Batman should be portrayed in my mind. I like. I think this is a very iconic Batman image, especially with a new costume. Character-wise, however, is a whole other issue. Um, now, first of all, let's get into the character of the Penguin. Um, in the ever since I think post Crisis, the Penguin has been portrayed as this sort of like suave, debonair, but you know, skeezy kind of like a ruthless and, you know, criminal businessman, you know, this, this, he's been, he's been sort of this, like, you know, the penguin is sort of like a, a trade kind of iconography, but he's not a penguin. He's a person. In this story, we have Dr. Robotnik, you know, with a, with a receding hairline, you know, going around saying, wah, 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 like he's Burgess Meredith come back from the dead and it sucks. I mean, his body itself looks like it can't even support his own legs. It's like Batman Returns all over again, you know, when the Penguin's running away from the cops and somehow he cannot run them because he has short legs. And then, oh, speaking of Batman Returns, yeah, you know, someone busting up in the, in the Batmobile. And then if you go back to Batman Returns a third time, you know, this, this monstrous, you know, inhuman version of the Penguin is taking straight from that. Well, I mean, I didn't like Batman Returns that much anyway, but to see it in the comic books just seemed like it was very, very lazy to me. Here's the thing about Batman. I don't think Batman is a character who will, like, unless it's the Joker, I don't think it's a, he's, a, he's a character who will just destroy somebody on any circumstances because Batman is a character whose threats in mythology go beyond simple, let me break this wrist and, I'll, and, I'll, and then I'll get you to talk. That's what a thug does. That's what a criminal does. And they make a point in this issue that he'd get into some kind of rage because of some amulet, whatever, I mean, it better be for, I don't know, mind control reasons or some crap like that, but that's out of character. I don't care. Batman doesn't do that. Um, I did kind of like how Killer Croc was being used, and I kind of liked the idea that Batman was in another death trap, because that's very, you know, that's very classically comic book. At the same time, how does how do they hook up a bomb to his heart? Especially with this new Bat suit. How can they, 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 they leave his belt on, I assume. 
and they leave his mask on even though he's on even though he's unconscious for several hours. And so you get the sense that they can't even get to his costume, but they hook up a bomb to his heart rate. I mean, does, is there, are there special pulses on his nose or something, or under his under his nostrils or on his lips? Well, nothing's hooked up up to there. This is a fan comic, and this is a fan comic in the sense that it's it's there are a lot of classic tropes here. There's a lot of good stuff, but there's a lot of stuff that's just not thought out at all. And I want to like this book, but I gotta give it what it deserves, and that's at best two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, I, I agree. It's such a fanboy-esque comic with these loads of references to films. He's obviously a massive fan of the films and sort of playing off everything he knows as Batman. And then there's this over-the-top brutality and a very forced speech, I think, which just sort of um, encompasses that whole fanboy comic. Like, it's, um, I, quite, I do quite like the art. I don't mind the interpretation of the penguin I thought Killer Croc looked a bit like Swamp Thing though and I, I don't think the Batmobile should be that easy to break into that was, unless it's going to turn into another sort of 60s thing like oh yeah well I knew you were going to break into the Batmobile that's why I made it so easy for you so I could trap you later <laughs> Josh would love that wouldn't actually surprise me and yeah that, that would whole... be even worse <laughs> <laughs> yeah I would and then the whole yeah, Death Trap, which is more, you know, just um, 60s references and stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I don't get the interpretation of Ragman at the end. That really confused me. So I, I don't really have much good to say about this issue apart from the art, so I'm going to give it two out of five batterings. And over on the website, Melinda gave it four out of five, so that is going to give Batman the Dark Knight number two... Three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Night and Squire number six. Night and Squire issue six, the final installment of the 4-6 miniseries, written by Paul Cornell with art by Jimmy Broxton. The issue opens up at a crime scene where superhero pop star Jane Peabody has been shot dead. It's revealed that the Joker did it because she may have been able to foresee his plan, and he's not worried about Squire, though, because she's obviously distracted with the strike's death. Dead superheroes start popping up all over England, and whilst the murders are suspect to be linked, nobody knows who's behind it. That is until Knight works out that it's the real Joker using proxies after he finds a Joker mask that controls its wearer to kill superheroes. Squire thinks up a plan to trick the Joker into a confrontation as the masks contain cameras and microphones, so the superheroes only say and do what they want the Joker to see and hear, and they convince him that they are being overwhelmed. At this point, the supervillains of England side with the heroes, as they are not happy with the Joker doing their job. All of the remaining heroes and villains meet up at Stonehenge to discuss their plans for getting rid of the Joker, when dozens of mind-controlled civilians turn up with guns. Knight then shouts into one of the masks, we can only hope Jarvis Poker holds out and doesn't let us down. The Joker becomes very suspicious of this and confronts Jarvis, but recognising Knight's plan, Jarvis merely taunts Joker into believing he has secret information. Later, Faceoff pretends to fight against the Joker's army, but in reality delivers another message. He mentions the magic, which scares Joker, who once again bullies Jarvis, who says he'll take him to the source of the magic. 
The two Jokers arrive at, the abandoned, at an abandoned-looking building. The Joker then shoots Jarvis and enters, which turns out to be the pub from issue one. Unable to use his guns, Joker is subdued by the heroes who take his weapons, strip him down, and teleport him to Arkham. The end. Alright, Night in Square number six. I think this was a perfect way to wrap up the Night in Square miniseries. They combined elements from almost every single issue that was released into a large overarching storyline for those who read all six issues. But again, this issue, for the most part, could stand alone by itself as a single issue. I think Paul Cornell did a wonderful job with this series. It's a shame that, unfortunately, the sales were not as great as, as they could have been, because I think they, he did a good job. Yes, issue three, the story about Richard III really wasn't that great, um, issue number two also was not super great, but when you look back at the issue, it had this miniseries had a lot more good issues than it did bad issues, and I think part of the problem of why maybe it didn't have as good as sales as it could have had was because of those those off issues being so early in the miniseries. Not that you could have changed the position of those issues, but at the same time, I think that kind of hurt the series. This last story with the Joker and Jarvis Poker and all of these different characters, it was great. It was, it was classic Joker, you know, just causing mayhem. And the best part about it was you had Jarvis Poker, who essentially modeled himself after the Joker, is sitting there saying, I don't, I don't find what you're doing hilarious. Why is this, how is this supposed to be funny? And you hear the Joker explaining exactly why what he's doing is funny to himself which is only funny to him. It's not funny to anyone else. I think this was a great story. I think the art was great. We didn't have, you know, we weren't face planning with a thousand Broxton text all over the, the book. Um, I, he did get in a couple here and there, but I, I wasn't, it wasn't overpowering to the point where it distracted me. I think this was a great issue. I thought the ending was great. I wish it could have been a little bit longer and I think the intention, maybe it was a little bit longer, where they could have wrapped up a couple more things, because it just, it seemed to end a couple pages short, shorter than what it could have, because of the way it ended, where they explain exactly what's going to happen in the Joker, and then you see them leave the, the pub, and that's the end of it. It seems like there was, there was a couple pages missing. I could be wrong, but I would assume that because this these issues were written probably before they decided to chop down the issues to a certain amount of pages, there may have been some re-edits where they condensed the last couple pages into a shorter space. But it didn't harm the book. I just wish it could have lasted longer, as I wish that there could be another Night and Square miniseries, because for the most part, this was a great series. Four and a half out of five batterings. This series was weird from start to finish, with all the Richard Third stuff, and... Joker is magically being teleported. Little trippy, and with all the confusing stuff going on in Red Robin and the Grant Morrison books, I don't know if I really want to read a miniseries where I also had to kind of be mind-tripped. Uh, you know, the art wasn't too bad. Uh, I really have no emotional attachment to the Nine Squire character, though. Never did. It was a little bit interesting to see their world, but it's not a place I'd like to visit a lot. I'm going to give it one and a half out of five batterings. How? Um, like everyone else but Josh, I very much enjoyed this miniseries, and I thought that this last issue went out on a bang. Uh, 
the the series has typically been lighthearted, classical superhero fare, but this last issue with the Joker, you know, one of the most dangerous villains in the DC universe, you could feel like the world being upended in this little uh, this Night Squire, for lack of a better phrase, universe. And I thought that everyone's characterization was was I say characterization like they've had a long history, but I really like the way everyone is being written, especially Night and Squire, how they were taken aback, and they were also determined to take Joker down, and they did it by themselves. I thought it was great. There's also some some stuff I I tend to like in every comic book, in every Batman comic book, like on page three or page two or the title page, basically where you see the credits, you see a lot of like. Uh, classic Batman creators' names uh, written as graffiti on the wall, like Jack Burnley, Bill Finger, Sheldon Moldoff, Frank Miller, Klaus Johnson, Jim Mooney, those kind of stuff, those kind of guys. I thought that was great. And there's also some little touches, like in the arts, like with the, the laughing fish in the garbage can. And just, the, this, this issue was very, 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 very cool. So I'm going to do this five out of five Batarangs. Yeah, I thought this was an excellent end to a really great series. And I thought that bringing the Joker into it was brilliant. I mean, the juxtaposition of his persona against the British heroes worked really well and created a sense of realism in what was quite a ridiculous universe otherwise. Unfortunately for me, after what I thought was a near-perfect issue last time, this let me down slightly. But it was still really good. And... um, yeah, I think it's a shame that we're not going to see any more Night and Squire, at least for a while. But, uh, yeah, in this issue, I was really glad that the themes from issue five carried on, and I thought they handled the Shrike's death really well. I'm glad that he, they kept him dead. I thought that was quite clever, and they had that silent page, which I thought worked really well, just uh, showing the Squire trying to deal with it. And um, I thought it was also just fun to see a comic where Joker could just go around killing people without any ramifications. But um, I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Nine Square number six, four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Red Robin number 21. Red Robin number 21 by Fabian uh, Ryder and Marcus Toe Illustrator. Now, this issue is very complicated just in its technological setup, so bear with me if I go a little brief. Basically, Red Robin is trying to control the unter- Dark Side's internet to cut off the villain's communication feeds, and somehow Makari and Samana, the people who kidnapped Batman, had come across of old Blue Beetle foes called the Mad Men, and refix them to be parts to, to be ciphers for the internet. So in reality, these these ciphers are taking on Red Robin, and the longer they're in there, the more insane they become. And their insanity reaches out into the real world, like the internet, where in the internet, your negative emotions and inclinations uh, start to take hold of you more and more. So the basic setup is that Red Robin is battling four madmen as they are called, for multicolored madmen in the city while trying to have anarchy take them down in the internet. Now, at one point, he contacts his uh, private invest- personal private investigator, Jason Bard, to have, have it set up for anarchy to take them down through via the internet. And to get a quick edge on them, they flash into the internet with, with Tim wearing the 
alternate Red Robin costume, which, again, is basically just the Batman Robin movie Robin costume. And he he quickly takes them on, but is overcome by a, a set of villains, super, super villains like Luthor, Brazaro, Captain Cold, all those guys. But he's also helped out by Lonnie Macon, who uh, has several copies of Anarchy to join him. It eventually gets to the point where Anarchy can save the internet from taking over the, the city, basically, just as Tim's comlink is starting to make him go all crazy and loopy, and he's starting to mix up what exactly is reality. Now, this, he's, he starts to scramble the, scramble the connection, but he does tell Tim that this won't kill them, but it will keep them in their madman's status for an, ex, for an undetermined amount of time, possibly forever. And since Tim doesn't want to kill him, he has no other choice but to keep them in that madman's state. So he, by the, so he manages to do this, and by the end of the issue, he gets off rather somber, thinking, this didn't work out, but I just didn't have a choice, and there's always more work to do. And as the issue ends, we see you know, the, the legitimate anarchy in the, the classic red and yellow uh, costume start a fire and says, with fire comes the start of a new civilization. And that was Red Robin number 21. All right, Red Robin number 21. It was extremely confusing. There was a lot of different things that... It, it goes back to this whole internet thing. It, it, it's, it's very hard to comprehend. I'm glad that the story is over. And, you know, we do end with a little bit at the end where we could possibly be seeing Lonnie Markin as... Or Lonnie Macon as Anarchy appear... In the future, I, I I find the character interesting. If we saw Ulysses S. Armstrong show up as Anarchy again in the future too, because I think some of those stories that played out in the last pages of Robin uh, with Tim Drake back in 2009 were great, and these two characters had a lot of influence on why those stories were really that great. Um, but besides that. You know, as confusing as it was, it was interesting to see that these these madmen had, you know, some of the stuff that they were saying. It was almost like one of those Bing commercials where they, they start talking about something and then they get completely off topic. Next thing you know, they're, they're scattered brain and they're talking about something completely different than what they originally were intending to talk about. But that's what you would expect from somebody who gets everything about what they do from the Internet. And I found that interesting. I also found interesting, like some of a lot of the like the random references to different forms of pop culture, which was kind of interesting as well. It's it's not the best issue in the world. The art had I had no problems with the art whatsoever. I think Marcus to- did an excellent job going back and forth between the internet and the actual reality. Um, I'm interested to see where Red Robin goes from here, but I'm, it's not because of what happens in this issue. So two and a half out of five batterings. This internet stuff, once again, it's we're having too many issues of Red Robin in a row where we're doing this whole alternate reality thing, and um, it, this title's actually been starting to lose me in the past few issues. Uh, I do like the return of kind of a more traditional anarchy. Got a bit of nostalgia for me, especially since that has been one of those things that's been building in the background since the end of uh, Fabian's uh, Robin... I guess, I don't know what I call it, like Robin Prime run or Robin Volume 1 run. But, you know, uh, the the Tim Drake Robin series, basically. So that was kind of cool. Uh, 
Well, I don't like the internet things. At least, you know, we got some funny nods in there like Chris O'Donnell Robin. But otherwise, I'd like this title to get back to, you know, the stories that it was awesome at telling. Three out of five batterings. Uh, I'm in tandem with his thoughts. I think that basically, like, the more and more they do this internet stuff, the more confusing it gets because it sort of becomes, Red Robin's sort of become, uh, you know, the hit list. What is he going to do? How is he going to establish his place in Batman Incorporated? You know, Gotham City, fighting crime, freeing criminals, what's Tim Drake going to do? And then every so often they tend to, like, just push this internet thing on it. And it doesn't make much sense because Tim Drake was barely in Final Crisis as it was. This title isn't written by Grant Morrison, and no other title, to my knowledge, is dealing with the internet. If anything, this would be in Birds of Prey because it has Oracle, and she deals with the internet more than Tim does. I just don't understand the need for this internet storyline whatsoever, and I'm, I'm thanking God that it's ending soon because it's just very, very confusing. The art's still spectacular. The art is perfect. And if you look at the letters pages, you see people clamoring for the return of that that uh, Chris O'Donnell Robin costume on Tim. And he really does look good in it because it's, it's pretty much the same thing as his current Red Robin costume, just with a classic belt instead of a, uh, a cross-chest uh, belt, I suppose. And, you know, no cowl. The story lost me because I, it's, you jump in the story and you don't know what's going on. But um, the art's excellent and the t- characterization's pretty good. But just for the fact that it was so hard to tell what was going on, I got to give this two and a half out of five better ratings. Yeah, this issue was confusing. There was the break in the arc for that calculator crossover with Teen Titans, but I actually didn't mind it because it gave us a break from the internet stories. So hopefully, won't be seeing them for a while. I really like the art, and I really like the colours of the internet, even though they don't quite make sense if it's meant to be this domain for evil and oppression, and that everything's really bright and colourful in there. And I thought it was weird how we got references to like. It's like speaking Spanish at one point, and then they mentioned ketamine a bit later in, so I thought it was weird how we got that in um, other Batman series at the moment. But, uh, yeah, I really like Tim's, I suppose everyone's calling it Chris O'Donnell costume. I really like that, and it would be cool to see him wearing them a, that a bit more. But um, I think I'll give it two and a half out of five batterings. And over on the website, Suave Star gave it one... Battering, so that is going to give Red Robin number 21 two and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our final book, Batman Incorporated number four. Oh, yes. Written by, written by Grant Morrison, art by Chris Burnham. Something I'm sure the State Department would frown upon. This was their weapons plant. It would be a little hard to prove that now. Doesn't matter. They were finished here, but I've just begun. Who are you? Why are you doing this? You're the great detective. Figure it out. We start off with seeing an old man um, on an island with a bunch of penguins, and his cape seems to be smoke. Uh, We then cut to Kate Kane, Batwoman, the present-day Batwoman, and she's looking to get an explanation about... Oroboro, which we saw in the last issue of Batman Incorporated. She's at a circus, and she's talking to somebody named Johnny Valentine who tries to spray some acid on her, and a chase ensues. We then cut to a flashback of Kathy Kane, the Golden Age Batwoman, and we find out that her husband was just 
uh, buried, and the funeral just took place, and she's still dressed in black, and she is being approached to join uh, somebody known as Agent Zero, um, an international team of experts that this Agent Zero has assembled. He hands her a business card and says, I'm about to do something to relieve some of my grief. And she gets on a motorcycle and drives in circles at one of the locations inside of the circus. She then goes back to her house. We get a humongous backstory of Kathy Webb, who is Kathy Kane, who ends up becoming Batwoman in the Golden Age. It fills off fills up a lot of the stuff that we may not have known in the past as far as um, the fact that she had a lot of things going on in her life prior to her getting married to Nathan Kane, and she goes home after the funeral and finds out she sees on TV Batman and Robin on the news, and she decides that's exactly what she wants to do. We cut back to where we left off with Batman Incorporated number three with Sombrero and Scorpiana standing in front of the tank of the three orphan children and Batman and Algacho being forced to fight with the electric gauntlets. Um, as the fighting starts, we find out that, uh, again, Batman has another first woman he ever truly loved. Some information comes out, and we find out that uh, they're referring to none other than Kathy Kane, the original Batwoman. The fight ensues between them, and Batman's getting pretty ticked off about it because he was unaware that El Gacho knew anything about Kathy Kane. We then cut to Gotham City, where Kate Kane, Batwoman, present-day Batwoman, is chasing down Johnny Valentine throughout the circus, and over her comms unit, she's talking to her father, Colonel Kane, who's talking about how, again, something to do with Ouroboro. We then see Kate Kane... Batwoman present day go into what appears to be like a funhouse ride or something like that or a haunted house ride and when she goes inside she sees somebody dressed as the original golden age Kathy Kane Batwoman telling her you know to come and get her we then cut back to the flashbacks where we see Kathy Kane training in martial arts becoming a skilled scientist coming up with ideas for her costume and then we see the first interaction between Batwoman and Batman and Robin, where she actually possibly saves Batman from being shot by shining a spotlight in the criminal's face. She takes off on her motorcycle, leaving Batman and Robin pondering what actually has occurred. We then see Bruce Wayne and Kathy Kane exchanging things at a social gathering outside of the Batman aspect but more in like the playboyish aspect and then vice versa back when they're Batman and Batwoman exchanging a kiss as well. We then see a scene where Robin is talking to Alfred about how horrible this all seems and why is why do they need Batwoman and this new Batgirl you know we, we can't what's the point we were fine on our own. We also see Ace the Bathound as well. The next panel we see Robin walking up to the Batmobile and we have this exchange. <laughs> Robin saying, Sorry, I uh, didn't know you weren't ready. We see Batman and Batwoman inside the Batmobile with Batwoman's hair all messed up, Batman having lipstick on his face, and he says, uh, Hey, guess what, Robin? We're going to have a Bat family. <laughs>
we see Batgirl, Batwoman, Batman, and Robin all working together on various different things. Well, it turns out that uh, it's at a point, Kathy Kane and Batman are locked in a place and they're gassed and they assume they're going to die. They exchange a kiss. At this point, they have come to the conclusion that they really love each other. We then see Kathy Kane standing in front of somebody who we assume is the leader of this Agent Zero uh, organization type thing. And we find out that uh, he, he's known by a number of different names, and she basically is told that uh, you must marry Batman because we're going to, because I'm actually your real father, and I am a Nazi master criminal. We then see Batwoman meeting with Batman on the roof of a building in Gotham City, where they exchange the Tango del Muerte, and she breaks up with Batman. We then cut to present day, where the Golden Age Batwoman is attacking the present day Batwoman with none other than the compact with the powder, which we've seen in the past, back in the day when uh, the Golden Age Batwoman was around. Uh, Kate Kane beats the crap out of this person, and we find out that it's somebody dressed up. She says to the Colonel, run facial recognition. And at some point, Oral Boral is being linked to uh, advanced metamaterials, and it's coming up classified. It's something to do with Nazi scientists. And then we find out that there's a Brit super spy called The Hood, which we assume will be appearing in future issues of Batman Incorporated meaning Batman and Batwoman are probably going to have to go to England. We then cut back to El Gacho and Batman, who are still fighting. El Sombrero and Scorpiana are watching on. They have an exchange about how El Gacho might have been involved in the murder of Kathy Kane. Batman seems pretty pissed about it. The screens go black, and we find out that uh, Batman has uh, disabled the situation that they're in. And he's pretty ticked and says, you shouldn't have brought Kathy into this. Kathy Kane made it personal. And then we find out he's saying that to El Sombrero as he stands above him with his electric gauntlets. And that's the end of Batman Incorporated number. All right. So clearly there can be a whole lot to say about this issue. I'm going to start off with the fact that I know there's two people on this podcast that are going to say that they have a lot of issues. I, I am not one of those people. I actually thought, for the most part, that this was actually played out very well. I did have a problem with the panel where Batman is making out with Batwoman inside the Batmobile and Robin walks in on them. I did find that to be a little bit of a problem because it seemed out of place as far as the rest of the issue. Yes, Batman, again, as usual, is played off as a love-struck person, which we've seen all too often lately. I don't understand why we keep seeing this. But, at the same time, this is reintroducing Kathy Kane into continuity. It's, it, well, I mean, not that Ace the Bad Hound really has a whole lot to do with it, but we see Ace the Bad Hound, which we also haven't seen for quite some time. We see how this possibly could play out as far as Kate Kane existing, Kathy Kane existing, how it all ties together in some way, shape, or form could be interesting. There's some things I'm not super excited about. I care less about this Dr. or Dr. Dedulous or whatever the guy's name is because it really seems like it's leading somewhere. 
obviously it's going to lead somewhere because Grant Morrison always leads somewhere and then finishes wrapping things up very neatly for the most part. Chris Burnham's art. I had to say, this guy did a great job with this issue. I thought his distinction between the the present-day panels and the panels where there were flashbacks, there was very unique differences between the two. And I, I like seeing an artist who can do two different art styles simultaneously in the same issue and make it work. Um, we saw that with Jerry Ordway in the last story arc of Batman Confidential, and that was the only saving point of that story arc whatsoever. And I praised his art for that. I really like the art. It, you know, a lot of people say it looks like Frank Quietly's art in some way. I think it is, but I think it's more detailed in the fact that it's not as exaggerated as Frank Quietly. He has a very unique style, and I don't think it is Frank Quietly. Yes, you can draw some similarities between the two, but I, I like his art. I, I think his art is good, and I'm looking forward to what he's going to do in the future, especially if he's going to be drawing a lot more characters within uh, the Batman universe and upcoming issues of Batman Incorporated. I, I'm interested to see how this is all going to play out. I'm really trying to figure out how exactly the artist lineup landed out the way it did. I'm sure that the original intent might have been, well, let's plug this Kathy Kane, Kate Kane story into Incorporated to lead us into the actual Batwoman story, even though it probably has nothing to do with what's going on in Batman Incorporated. Let's give a lead-in for Batwoman and get people thinking and talking about Batwoman prior to the series coming out. But obviously that's not the case anymore. Um, I'm looking forward to what's going to happen. And besides that one little panel, which... You know, it's going to be a big deal for my my colleagues. I thought it was a good issue. Four out of five batterings. Let me try and articulate some of the issues that I have with this issue. No pun intended, if that even is a pun. Kate Kane. It was assumed that when she first came into existence that this was kind of like, you know, a Kara Zor-El type deal where we had a Kara Zor-El in the Silver Age. She was retconned out after Crisis. And then we have a new one now, and it's supposed to be the modern incarnation of the first character. You know, she's Superman's cousin, she landed from Krypton, and she's Supergirl. There is no Silver Age Supergirl in continuity now. There's no two girls with the same name that landed and both happened to become Supergirl that both existed. So we have had references to Kathy Kane since Crisis. But it was assumed that with the latest set of retcons and other crises that Kate Kane was the current Batwoman. Now we find out that Kathy Kane still exists, which I'm usually a fan of everything being in continuity because that's one of the things I hate about DC. But in this case, it just it's very problematic after everything that's happened. First of all, Batwoman issue zero, when Bruce Wayne is investigating, is this new Batwoman Kate Kane? At no point does he logically think, huh, isn't it funny if Batwoman turns out to be Kate Kane, since that name is so similar to Kathy Kane, who was the other Batwoman? Huh, that's a weird coincidence. And they're both from the same family, too, because uh, we know the Kane family tree now, and apparently this Batwoman is related to the other one. So, yeah, there's that, too. And by the way, when Bruce is investigating, you know, the Kate Kane Batwoman issue zero, at no point does he brood, oh, this is reminding me of Kathy, the love of my life. (laughs) 
oh. it's so personal. I'm so sad that she's gone. Now we didn't get any of that, you know. I I, I wonder why, you know. Bruce must have like you know put a mind block over his mind so he would never have to go through the pain of thinking of his dear Kathy. Speaking of his dear Kathy, this isn't like we're getting a new set of history, like. The way that Morrison's doing this is that all those Silver Age stories and Bronze Age stories happened. We're just finding out what happened in between those panels. But all those stories like Batman of Zoran are like those still happen, which means that it makes the history make even less sense. First of all, when the love of Batman's life, Miss Kathy Kane, died, killed by the Bronze Tigers men in the 70s. Batman was, you know, a bit, you know, sad about it, but he pretty much carried on. He's like, well, I'm going to avenge those – I'm going to avenge Kathy's death because I avenge people's deaths. But, I mean, he didn't really react the way that you'd think he would. He was just like, oh, an innocent person died on my watch. Oh, well. And, like I said, he forgot about it. There was even a story, and um, I think it was called The Kingdom. It was one of those, like, Kingdom Come-type sequels that took place in the modern DCU. Where Batman's like being told about hypertime by another character, and there's holograms of different Silver Age and Golden Age retcon characters in this like restaurant, and there's one of Kathy Kane Batwoman, and Batman looks at it like, "What the heck is this?" Then like, the effects of hypertime take over, and he looks at it and he's like, "Kathy," and then he like doesn't recognize it anymore. They're like, "Wait, what was that?" And he's like, "No, it's nothing. I don't know who this person is." Apparently, no. Apparently not. He didn't know the woman that he almost married, which. And if this is, again, supposed to be going in line with what the history of those original stories were, in those original stories, Batman couldn't stand Kathy Kane. Yeah, huh? Yeah, he was always like, and this isn't like, oh, well, that was Earth-1 continuity, and this is this continuity. No, 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 because the way that Grant's playing this is he's playing it off of the events of those original issues. In fact... He has direct quotes from some of those original issues in here, including Batwoman's first appearance and, Don, what's the name of that story where, like, they're split into two different worlds and think they're going to die? I don't know the name of the story, but, like, in the scene where, they're, where she's saying, you know, dying wouldn't be so bad as if I knew you loved me, too, that's directly lifted from the Silver Age comic book. Yeah. So we're supposed to believe that in between those panels, he was also met. And another thing, too, she now knows that he's Batman, which does not go along with any of those books. We're supposed to accept the fact that – I can accept the fact, like, something little like, oh, look, it turns out that Tim's stepmother Dana was actually, you know, a girlfriend of Alfred's back in college. Huh, who knew? That's like – that's something about a character's history that's a little major, but because of the context of it, you know, it makes sense that it won't cut him up. The context of – oh, yeah, by the way, Batman was engaged to the original Batwoman, and he actually loves her so much that when you mention her name, it makes it personal. Yeah. Well, it wasn't personal when the Bronze Tiger killed her. It wasn't personal when he saw her hologram. It wasn't personal when somebody with the same name who happened to be in her family also became Batwoman, and nobody pointed out the coincidence of it. If Dustin was to get a new member of the regular Batman Universe podcast, and their name was Donald Grant, like, <laughs> w- would anybody, like, would everyone just ignore the similarities? <laughs> We that. may have to test that out. That's the problematic thing about Kathy Kane being retconned back in because she was already replaced. It would be like saying that, like, that there was also a Golden Age Batman named Bruce Wayne running around, you know, in the 1930s as well, whose parents were also gunned down in Crime Alley. <laughs> this thing, it's it's so problematic. Like all of a sudden, you know, Bat- 
And again, this is going along with he, he's so enraged by hearing her name, and this is at the same time as like, oh, Una Nemo, or oh, you know, uh, Don yeah. Golden. Oh, if she was so important, how come she hasn't been mentioned before? You know, which is a less minor thing than the fact that again, a character as big as Batman. You know, we can find out, oh, it turns out that Batman spent, you know, his the summer when he was 10 years old living in Paris, you know, being an apprentice at an opera house. You know, that's like, okay, that's an untold thing about his life, you know, that if that came out, I wouldn't have much of a problem with. But then to say, oh, yeah, yeah, here's an untold tale about Batman, this, you know, 60-year-old character who's been around forever. Yeah, he was engaged to one of his supporting characters, and he loves her so much that, you know, he gets so mad when he hears her name. That's a pretty big thing that she worn into a character's history, a pretty big thing. The fact that he almost married her and that, like, especially when in the original books he couldn't stand her and she didn't know his real name. Now all of a sudden she does. And just the absurdity of some of this stuff, like, oh, by the way, Batwoman, you know, I'm your father and I'm a Nazi criminal. I'm going to tell Batman <laughs> that you're the daughter. And then, like, they break up by doing the tango? What the heck is this? <laughs> and, and you know what? Like, I have the fullest confidence, you know, that, that I'm just opening up for Donovan. I'm going to let Donovan talk about, like, you know... <laughs> Talk about Kathy Kane's resume because he'll do that more justice than I could. Because my gosh, her resume is weird. And this, the opening sequence, though, I will say it was like fanfic. Like oh, this dude. guy falling around. But Kathy Kane, you're the only one that can do this top secret secret agent job. I'm doing what anyone would do after their husband's funeral. Rip open the bottom of their funeral dress and do stunts on a motorcycle. That's like something a ten year old would write. <laughs> It's like, oh my god, like, a few weeks ago on uh, on The Office, they had an episode like that where the character, like, makes a fan film, and it's, like, the same thing. It's like, it's the president. He knows that you're the only person for this job. And, like, the joke was that it was supposed to be written badly, but the they're playing this straight like oh batwoman you know you're the only one that can do this job miss circus heiress who happens to also happens to be the best secret agent ever and can do stunts on our motorcycle god you know you, this this could have the best art ever and it could be a very very well-written story but you cannot divorce the story from the history because this story does not stand on its own because this story affects Batman's history, past, present, and future. You can't ignore that. That's pretty big. That would be like, you know, that would be like Thomas Wayne, you know's ghost, you know, coming to Batman and saying, The night that I was shot, I pooped my pants. You know, <laughs> from the sound of the gunshot wound. Jesus <laughs> This wasn't as bad as Oracle, like, you know, watching people get choked to death and Russia almost exploding on TV and saying they'll be all right. But this <laughs> was pretty bad. I'm going to give it one and a half out of five batterings. Donovan, you're up. I consider what Josh just said. I am of the opinion that Grant Morrison's run of Batman has been very good. And part of the reason I like that is that a lot of other people, you know, Josh, and I would assume Dustin, Joe included, he brings a lot of stuff into continuity and have it all stick. Some people like to bring continuity and, you know, change it what they're, what, into something new or to retcon it into what they like. But for the most part, I felt that Grant Morrison's been very, very fair. Batmite, Batman and Zero and R, the, 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 the Club of Batman, you know, they're brought back into continuity, but they were brought back into continuity in specific ways that didn't, that didn't contradict other continuity. They were like, oh, yeah, remember, remember when this happened? Oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. Let's talk about it for maybe two or three issues, and then let's leave it alone. So I, I really, really love the way Grant Morrison has written continuity. 
until now. Because Kathy Kane Batwoman is such a harmless and innocuous character from the Silver Age that I would give you $1,000 if you find me any teenager, let alone, you know, Batman fan who has a clue to who Batwoman is. Silver Age or Modern Age. But you bring in Kathy Kane, who, like jo- like Josh hinted at the start, is brought in like she's like, you know, like like modesty blaze or basically like the, the the female version of James Bond, you know she's a, she's a, she was always a, a circus acrobat that's that's true, but apparently she you know published poetry, directed three award winning underground films. This is actual dialogue in the, in, the, in the comic by the way, and you know went through relationships between a rock star an actor a brilliant scientist among several others. She's a daredevil. She's a rich heiress, you know. She's a she's a she's a widow who doesn't cry when her husband dies. Like, if you look up the term Mary Sue in the dictionary or in the Wiktionary, I guess since it's since 2011, you'll see these panels from this comic book. She is the most deified character built up since, like, Jeff Johns has written Howard Jordan or Chloe Sullivan on Smallville. Like, this character can do anything and everything. And the first thing she does is, you know, be the great love of Batman's life. I don't think so. I mean, it's true. Batman is a, the kind of guy who's, you know, he's fallen in love with different people before. The thing is, if this is Batwoman we're talking about, and this has always been in there, you know what? Because Grant Morrison's dropped a hint of Kathy Kane before, but he, you would see, like, at least a, a, a glass case of her costume or something. I mean, it's, in, it's always been in continuity how she was killed. You know, the Bronze Tiger's men. I have that issue. And he, no no he glass won- case because it would be too personal for him. Whatever. I mean, it's just like this is my main problem. I'll, I'll cut it right to the chase. Graham Morrison basically took the Batwoman character and made her into like the best character in all of Batman's history ever. And the way he did that was just so 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 stupid. I mean, she she just gets the drop on everybody. And I'm not I'm not I'm not against you know uh, uh, tough female characters or anything, but the way she does this. And, like, the fact that this, 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 this really silly Silver Age character just playing everybody for fools, and the fact that she can do anything and everything, and Batman is still head over heels with it. Batman! You know, the, the gosh darn Batman is, like, a puppy, is in the puppy love over this, this woman. And it's just, it's just ridiculous the way this plays out. Especially, and, does, and Josh mentioned this, they go back and cite specific Silver Age issues. And in those issues, Batman... He didn't. He, Batman and Robin didn't want a thing to do with Batman, Batgirl, woman or Batgirl. But then they're saying, "Oh, Batman proposed to her." And, you know, they were. He was head over heels in love. It's like, it's it's going back to the, the the fan comic theory of these these modern comics. You're writing them the way you want them to be, but they don't make sense to establish history, establish characters, and establish events. And as nerdy as that sounds, as geeky as annoying as much as comic creators don't want to hear that, you can't be in that profession if you're going to do that all the time. So I gotta agree with Josh. I'm sorry. This gets one out of five, one and a half out of five batterings. I liked it, but would liked it a lot more if they didn't just make this character into like the greatest, the greatest character since Batman's inception. Okay. Obviously, I I don't know as much about Kathy Kane or anything, so I wasn't bogged down by that when I was reading it because I am the newest to comics here. But um, so just looking at it as an issue, and if I ignore everything I've just been bombarded with, then I, I really like the art. Um, I can see that 
quietly-esque you know, and I, I really think it uh, but I really like how he, um, Chris Burnham did Batwoman it's really reminiscent of J.H. Williams uh, sorry Batwoman I thought he did it really well You know, even the colouring was very similar in that kind of painted style and he even sort of did quite similar to um, Yannick Paquette's style when they were doing the Gaucho and Batman's fight sequence so I thought it was very good how he just changed his art style to fit the tone of the the sequence that was happening and um, we started seeing some uh, references back to the first issue I mean only snippets but with the um, you got to see that logo again with the eye and the spider's web for the spiral thing and the Daedalus and Agent Zero which is uh, it's good to see that it is as part of a bigger plan and um I think it's interesting how Morrison brings everything into continuity and I thought the flashback sequence was really good and they were kind of written in that campy style which I thought worked and um, I thought there was this references when, uh, just before he did the Tango del Muerte which I thought was good as well how we learned how he learned the dance but there seemed to be sort of references to year one and because it mentioned I just went through a major atavistic transformation which basically means gone back to how you started which is like a reference to after or like the start of current age where he, Batman goes back to that grittier character which I thought was good and that kind of brings it around and, and why Batwoman then leaves and I thought that was quite clever and uh, I thought with the art as well we started to see those sort of interesting pa- panels with the angle to match the perspective which Chris Burnham was talking about at c 2 and um, I'm looking forward to the conclusion of this art because I think there is one more issue set in Argentina so I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out and I'm looking forward to seeing how Batwoman, Batwoman will play into the rest of the series so I'll give it a 4 out of 5 batterings okay so <laughs> two, two sides of that, that uh, issue uh, we got two uh, two four out of fives and two one out of one and a half out of five bad ranks. All right, so that's going to give Batman Incorporated number four three out of five bad ranks. That is all of our comic reviews. So let's get right into BBFB with Nick. Let's throw it over to him and see what he's got. And welcome back to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and today I'm going to be looking through a new Bat book. Uh, today it's going to be Two Face Crime and Punishment. This book was published in 1995. It's written by J.M. Dematius. I hope I got that name correct. The art is provided by Scott McDaniel, who used to work on Nightwing and has been featured in the uh, Batman comics recently with uh, Batman and Robin and Detective. Now, Two-Face is a complicated man, um, so let's dive into his own messed-up mind and learn a little more about Gotham's ex-district attorney. You're too late, Batman. Better find yourself another mask. The story opens on a dark and stormy evening. Harvey Dent stands high above the city, prepared to jump to his death. Two-Face, his secondary personality, dares him, taunts him, teases that he's too much of a coward to take the plunge. Harvey flips his coin, letting Chance decide his fate, and as it lands, scarred side up, he leaps into the darkness of a Gotham night. 
It would seem that this is the end of the story for Harvey Dent, but it isn't. Immediately we're slammed into a flashback and we see Harvey Dent as a child with an abusive alcoholic father whose inconsistent and violent behaviour emotionally damaged his young son and started unravelling his sanity at an early age. Brought back to the present day, we see that a similar child with a similar father and a similar outlook on life is being interviewed on a talk show. And then Harvey Dent decides to turn up, or should I say Two-Face. He bursts into the studio, takes the place hostage, and angrily rants on national television. This encounter sets a tone for the rest of the book as Harvey Dent and Two-Face bitterly clash over the meaning of right and wrong, fair and unfair. As the story progresses, Harvey tracks down his long-estranged father, the man who helped warp his mind and inadvertently set Two-Face on his path to villainy, and confronts him in front of all of Gotham, prepared to murder him before the eyes of millions. However, Batman, who's been tracking Two-Face through this ordeal, has replaced himself with his father. So as... uh, Two-Face is about to kill his father, Batman takes off the mask, and Harvey is uh, stunned. He rushes to the roof of the building, and that's where we catch up with the start of the story, and Harvey Dent jumps off the roof. Batman then decides to join Harvey and catches him, and they begin to fall to their deaths, but Batman decides to prevent it at the last minute. Harvey then says to Batman that Two-Face is gone, and uh, Harvey Dent is the sole remaining voice in his head. Uh, Bruce is happy to hear about this, but tells Alfred at the end that he's unsure if Harvey Dent's story is over. You think I want to escape from this? There is no escape from this. So in review, I thought this was a very strong script that's both exciting and compelling. Uh, It really analyses Dent very well, gets all the details right, um, and Harvey Dent and Two-Face feature prominently. The characters' two voices are distinct and separate, and we get to see that in the narration in the art with the different art styles um, for the different wording of who's speaking, whether it's the monster of the horrible Two-Face or the trapped Harvey Dent. Um, So I really enjoyed that. Uh, They complement each other very well. They play off each other, and uh, they move the plot forward together in a a very pleasing way. I really enjoyed um, hearing what Harvey Dent had to think. Delving into Harvey's past, it was a little controversial, uh, as we know the Long Halloween is really Harvey Dent's true origin story, but here we get to see a past involving his father, um, and I enjoyed it. I thought um, it was a brave move to take as a writer, but I thought it was a good one. Um, it added another layer to Harvey Dent's tragi- tragic demise, and we get to see, was it the acid that turned Harvey Dent? Was it the pressure of fighting for Gotham? Uh, and now we've also got his father added to that, a new dimension, and I think you know it all added up, and that's what pushed him over the edge. Um, now, Scott McDaniel's not my favourite artist. Um, I find his art always looks a little too cartoony, which isn't my personal favourite, but it does look stylish. Um, Two-Face looked very similar to the Batman Forever Tommy Lee Jones style, which, again, isn't my favourite. But there were some parts of this book that looked excellent, more usually featuring Batman. Uh, the Batcave, I thought, looked very good. Um, so there were some you know, good and bad bits here. Um, but uh, So the art was all over the place for me. But there were some very good moments where we simply had images to tell the story, no dialogue, and um, I find that's a really good combination of the teamwork there between writer and artist I think can be done very well and I always enjoy it when that works effectively Um, so yes we get to see a lot of Harvey Dent as a tortured soul, we see that Harvey Dent does really want to do the right thing most of the time but this 
Um, beastly force inside him forces him to flip the coin all the time and he has to enforce the outcome. And you really see that Harvey Dent is quite trapped within within his own mind. Um, so, this book was surprisingly good. Um, I wasn't expecting a lot. Will, will Harvey Dent be safe from now on? Uh, I very much doubt it, and I'm sure we'll, we'll see a development of that in the future. But I thought this was an excellent analysis of the character from something which I wasn't expecting much. And uh, it's clearly a very underrated book, because I'd never heard of it until uh, I got to this point in my list of books. So, um, in the end, I thought it was a great one-shot, and it was only let down a little bit by the inconsistent art. But that's just my personal opinion of Scott McDaniel. So, all in all, I'll be giving it four out of five. And if you're a fan of Two-Face, check this one out. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You thought we could be decent men in an indecent time! is cruel and the only morality in a cruel world is chance unbiased unprejudiced fair that was two-face crime and punishment next time i'm going to be looking at batman shadow box i'm afraid i don't know a lot about this one at the moment but i do know it's issues number 467 468 and 469 of the batman series hasn't been collected in a book so i'll be interested to see and learn more about this story next time um, as for bbfb please get on the forums uh, let me know what you think about this segment you can always send me an email at nick at thebatmanuniverse.net i'm always interested in hearing your opinions and comments um so please do send us some uh, feedback anyway that's uh, me done for another time i'm going to send you now back to dustin and the guys enjoy the show see ya in the court in the matter of the people versus Harvey Dent. How does the prisoner plead? Guilty. 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 Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Joe, let us know what uh, we've got as far as Bat Books delays is over the last couple weeks. Well, it wasn't much news. We learned a bit about artist changes from uh, CGV2 with things like David Finch getting a, another artist on his book. And the the only delay we have is Batman Inc. I think issue 5 is being delayed from the 13th of April to the 20th. Okay. <laughs> Alright, so that's what we've got for delays. Make sure you're checking out um, the editorial section of the website on Tuesday nights for any new Bat Books for delays. If nothing posts, that means there's no Bat Book delays, new Bat Book delays for the coming weeks, as of what we've posted in the past. Alright, so let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. As of right now, we will be covering Detective Comics number 875, Gotham City Sirens number 21, Batman Beyond number 4, and Superman Batman Annual number 5. So only, again, four issues to cover, so it'll be a quick episode, unless, of course, there's a discussion based on... Batman Incorporated number four, there very well could be a discussion about Batwoman. So if you'd like to hear more talk about Batwoman and her history, or any other discussion that you might want to hear, send us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. You've got about a week to uh, email us after the episode posts so that you can get your suggestion in before we actually set up recording and get everything ready to go. Uh, with only four issues to cover, perfect opportunity for a discussion. 
definitely will be a shorter episode than this episode, given so much news and uh, so many comics to review. So with that being said, I want to remind everybody, you, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can join the forums and become a member and chat with other Bat fans. You can listen to our other podcasts, including another podcast that has uh, recently fallen over under our umbrella, which is uh, Backworld Oracle, hosted by Stella. And uh, you can find her podcast at backworld2oracle.net. And our forum is also her forum. So if you listen to that podcast, you can join other Bat fans as well, talking about her podcast on the Batman Universe forums as well. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. We've got tons of stuff coming in the coming months leading up to San Diego. So let us know what you think. Send us an email. It's been a while since we've gotten some emails about the comic podcast. Do us a favor. Send us an email. Let us know what you uh, like and what you don't like, even if you're not on the forums. Those are always greatly appreciated. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. You got Josh. This is Donovan. And this is Joe. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Fly on, Kathy lovers. Fly on. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Bye. Face. Good boy. When, why does my guy always have long answers? When the Crusader starts setting fires in Devil Square, was that it? Um, yeah, that's it. Oh, okay. <laughs> did you did you rate right. it? Oh, oh no. I'm, I'm sorry. For a second, I thought you were doing everything right. <laughs> I was like waiting for you to say, "I give it this out of this bat." Dude, I'm I'm so tired, man. Um, okay. Superman Batman explores the first time Batman Dick Grayson worked with Superman after becoming Batman. Shut up. Um, Crack in time, but at the same time, Hello. we know that the DC my name's is. Jeff, the... and I have a ton... Okay. My name's Jeff. That'd be a great blooper. <laughs> no idea what the hell that was. I was googling peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because I would just ate one. Wait, why were you googling peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Because <laughs> uh, they covered it in the. Uh... Clearly, you're bored. <laughs> How much more of this do we have to go this through? Batman not... news is, this Batman news is so boring that Don's Googling food. <laughs> no, my, my head's in the game. My head's in the game. Now. Right. Clearly. <laughs>